Hey everybody, George here, just checking in with a few public service announcements. First, I just wanted to say that the movie we're talking about today is sort of a exploitation-y homage to the um, hygiene videos of the past, and so as such, the premise of it centers around an abortion and an abortion clinic. We don't linger on it or really like dive into the ethics of abortion or anything really, but... um, just letting you know that it is a big part of the movie and so we do talk about it a little bit also there is a depiction of rape in the movie at the very end it's literally like the last thing we talk about so if you're sensitive to that sort of thing you know it's there at the very end of our conversation oh also you know you might notice that this is an incredibly long episode And so, of course, this is one that we had sound issues with. So there's a little bit of a buzz on the audio. I don't think that it detracts from the episode too much, and I think that the conversation that Kelly and I had is good enough to merit still putting it out despite the audio. So uh, hopefully you agree and you enjoy it. And uh, that's it. Check out this episode uh, about the suckling. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the host of 2-Bit Horror. Hopefully, you checked out the episode featuring yours truly from the end of 2020. Kelly Hughes is here. Welcome, Kelly. Well, thank you, George. And I enjoyed having you on my show. So this is kind of like really cool to, you know, turn the tables and be a guest on your show thrilled to have you on and for people who aren't familiar with your show why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror that sort of thing well i've been doing the podcast since last year and i really didn't know what i was going to do with it at first i thought oh you know interview cool filmmakers and horror fans and i think you probably know a show is always different than you think it kind of evolves and has a (laughs) life of its own but for me it's really cool just to pick people's brains You know, I like hearing other people's favorites. I like to hear what influenced them. But for myself, for horror, kind of like what I've heard you talk about on your uh, podcast, I was kind of a horror lightweight. You know, early on, I was not a gore hound when I was young. Gosh, when I was a kid, I saw, what was it, um, that Roddy McDowell one where they go to the haunted house. Legend of Hell House? The Legend of Hell House. We actually have covered that on this very podcast. (laughs) See, that's one of my favorites now. When I was a kid, I went and saw it, and I was so frightened I walked out during the middle of it. (laughs) It, Hey, it gets pretty intense, honestly. Oh, my God. But I think the first horror movie that I really liked was Dressed to Kill, Brian De Palma. I think I probably just turned 17, and I could actually go and see a rated R movie at the theater which is, this dates me. Game changer. Game changer. This is back in 1980, <laughs> so do the math. I thought, wow, this is this really frightened me, and especially like the hospital part. Maybe that's why, you know, I like scary hospital stuff, and um, the yeah. movie we're going to talk about today has got some twisted hospital stuff. But I think in 83 is when I saw Evil Dead in the theater, and it was in a very grindhouse kind of, you know, audience participation theater. And again, uh, listening to your last podcast when you were talking about, you know, comedy and horror, Evil Dead is such a a mix of the two. Yeah. And I kind of appreciate that, although I hate when horror overtakes or the comedy overtakes the horror. I still want it to be scary. But I think I like when the filmmaker himself, like a director, you can tell when, you know, he or she has a twisted sense of humor. and. (laughs) And maybe it's not like a, a funny horror movie, but there are moments in it where you go, yeah, this this 
this is really twisted in a fun way. Yeah, I think Raimi really has that in spades. And it's it's particularly visible in something like Drag Me to Hell, I think, when he is going less for a blend of horror and comedy, but still that sense of humor of his sort of bubbles to the surface. And you can just tell that he is a funny person as opposed to uh, someone who can only write comedy. Like he just has that sense of humor sort of baked into his storytelling from the word go. Yeah. And I think the whole thing, especially with low budget horror, a sense of humor can make or break it. You know, when you don't have a lot of money for special effects, at least you can have really fun characters and funny dialogue. Absolutely. It's a it's a great way to keep people engaged when you don't have a lot else going on. Yeah. Well, speaking of, you know, I talked about other horror connections. Um, you know, I did have my own very low budget horror TV series in the early 90s, which was public access TV, which, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And just, you know, homegrown, do it yourself. You know, oh. I, I did my stuff in the pre YouTube days when, you know, we just never would have dreamt of YouTube. <laughs> And we just thought, oh, oh, we can have our own show like on this cable TV channel that no one probably watches. You know, it's the kind that you would like skip <laughs> over, you know, when you're channel surfing. Right. <laughs> but mine was kind of like, I call it, I used to call it more horror, but I think it was like more exploitation. And that's another thing I like is when horror kind of uh, transfers over to exploitation where maybe it has a lot of action in it in addition to the horror or maybe yeah. a lot of, you know, comedy or maybe a blending of genre. And so, like, when I did my show, I used to, um, you know, I did an episode a week. I'd make, like, a little half-hour little mini-exploitation film every week. And wow. I'd show it on cable channel 29 in Seattle. And, and it kind of also, at the time, it was when home video, it was out, but it was still, like, when a lot of titles weren't out. And, you know, when I go to the video store, it was a real adventure to discover a low-budget uh, movie on video. And... We take for granted now we can see all of this on YouTube or Netflix or Amazon. But back then, there was this whole kind of um, scavenger hunt of finding old drive-in movies and exploitation, grindhouse. And that probably influenced me more than anything was just finding, you know, the obscure little gem that was made on no budget. And to this day, I really champion, you know, the no-budget filmmaker who, just through their ingenuity, humor, their casting, that's what I always want to find when, you know, I'm watching a movie. Absolutely. I I, th I frankly couldn't agree with you more. I think that when it, when it is something like that, it's so easy to see that it's a passion project, that it's someone really putting their heart and soul into this thing. Because they're willing to make it work without having all of the resources uh, at their fingertips. And I just think it's so easy to overlook little flaws or quibbles or anything, you know? There are, there are plenty of movies, like, um, uh, I was semi-recently watching uh, Len Kabazinski's Challenge of the Five Gauntlets. And it's, like, there's there's a couple of scenes in it where you're like... Man, that was obviously like the first take, and they were just like, "We don't have the time <laughs> to like uh, to run it again, so we're just gonna move with it." And that becomes part of the joy of it is, is being like, "This is you know held together by a hope and a dream, <laughs> and that's about it." And I, I just think that there is so much joy to be found in stumbling over something like that, that you can then pass on to someone else. I remember the first time I saw a movie where like someone flubbed a line and they <laughs> left it in. And I thought, can they do that? Is that legal? <laughs> 
And I remember a big part of it was when I first saw John Waters movies in the early 80s. Sure. I'm a huge fan, especially the very early, like, Desperate Living and Female Trouble and Pink Flamingos. Right. And those aren't necessarily horror, but they were this type of movie that... Um, it's like, oh my god, I can't believe this was made. It's transgressive. It really is. Yeah. Um, transgressive. That's that's a perfect word for it. Transgressive, which borders with horror. I think a lot of people think they're being transgressive nowadays, but I don't think they truly know what being transgressive is. In the Instagram age, everyone thinks they're edgy, but I don't think maybe they're just not old enough or have the frame of reference to really know what it's like to take a risk. It doesn't have that same bite that a lot of things did even up to you know like like the movie that we're going to be talking about 1990 you know when things are really sort of picking up speed in the shot on video era as well you know there was a certain element of transgressiveness that i think has sort of faded away for a lot of people i don't want to generalize but let's just say there's two kinds of filmmakers one that do it kind of safely, it's cushy, maybe they have financing if they're younger, maybe they're still living at their parents and they have some you know basic security. Or maybe they um, you know have a big group of friends and supporters around them that you know no matter what happens, they've, they've got a safety net. Then there's category two, which is maybe you're couch surfing, you know maybe you're on the verge of you know being evicted because you're not paying your rent. Because, you know, you've got, you know, you're temping or you don't have a stable job, but you just have, you know, this burning desire to make a movie. So you hang out at the clubs, you cast people, you know, at closing time and, you know, you're just making contact contacts out there with maybe more marginal people. You're kind of living what you're going to be filming. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you have to do that. You know, you can definitely be a pretty preppy mainstream person to make a you know a gutsy movie but at the same time there's just something special about someone i'm trying to think of an example maybe early john waters when you know your whole cast and crew were these very transient people who living you know hand to mouth that that gives this imperceptible edge to your movie that you know like a wes anderson i don't think could duplicate that no I certainly and not to say it. I don't like Wes Anderson, but that's a whole different aesthetic. Exactly. He's one of my favorite directors, but I just, you know, when you have sort of developed that aesthetic, you know, sometimes it's okay to just work within that one thing. Uh, and I think nowadays it's hard to duplicate that because everyone has some kind of safety net to them, mm -hmm. I think. And that I think the, the people who... Um, you know, isn't it, there's nothing worse than, you know, some kid of wealthy parents who, you know, they buy him a fancy camera and then he goes out and tries to make a transgressive movie. Yep. You can just tell th there's not a realness to it. And I'm not saying, you know, when I was making like my stuff back in the day, you know, I was out living on the streets or, you know, shooting heroin, you know, on the streets of Seattle. But, you know, I was working some crappy jobs and, you know, kind of this hand to mouth thing. And, and, you know, making movies was my whole life back then. You know, you do the nine to five job and all your other waking hours was spent making your crazy movies, calling up people and persuading everyone to, you know, degrade themselves in these <laughs> silly little horror films. And there's just this kind of hunger to it. Right. And I think it's that whole people aren't as hungry anymore. And then with YouTube, there's this instant gratification. Think of the people back in the 70s you know, maybe they would be uh, losing their home 
because they you know took out a mortgage on their home to make a drive-in exploitation film mm -hmm. that maybe they would never see any money from but somehow they've lived on in infamy because they did give everything to make that movie yeah it, it just feels different when someone is like i finally scraped together enough to make another scene versus like you know i got for my 18th birthday this great camera let's go out and you know spend some of our allowance on on making this um i do want to dive in on something that you sort of alluded to which is your thoughts on youtube and what it means for filmmakers because in our paranormal activity episode i kind of touched on this a little bit where i think it's really interesting that youtube really feels like a a shift the same way that home video and like having affordable camcorders for people to buy on the consumer market it, it feels very similar to me in that you know, things can never go back to the way they were. It almost, to me, can feel like going through a, you know, a video store and, and stumbling upon a channel that has only a hundred subscribers or whatever, and, and it's this crazy short film. So I'm curious what you think about, there is that instant gratification, but also the opening up of the the participation, you know, that people who might not have otherwise gotten a chance to get their their video scene at all having this sort of opportunity well i've been looking at youtube you know since you know 15 years ago but really more seriously about the last 10 years it's grown exponentially i mean people are really finding how to best use the whole format they were kind of searching early on and i think it really works well for nonfiction. I really love how it's become a form for individuals to review films they like. I love watching horror reviews on YouTube. Just someone looking at the camera, you know, no bells and whistles. What I really love is when you can see their video collection in the background. Yeah. You know, where their their home looks like a video store because they've got shelves and shelves of videos. I think that's really cool to see that inside glimpse or their memorabilia in the background, that personal touch. Because you know it's not like a film set. It's not like Siskel and Ebert sitting on a professional movie set. This is their personal collection, and I really like that. Yeah. And I also like that these are people who love this stuff, and they know more than you know. I know. These people know their stuff. So I love how it's letting the common guy be like an expert. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what it's not doing yet is for filmmakers to show their original work, ironically. And I, I'm sure that's going to change and grow. What I think is kind of sad, there's a lot of shorts on YouTube, and I think they get ignored a lot. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, because maybe people perceive that as the nonfiction thing, and Netflix as the fictional thing, you know, for narrative work. Right. But And then again, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I think it's a shame a lot of really good shorts get ignored on YouTube. I think the stuff that does get seen, you know, is like cool old movies you like that, oh, I don't want to pay for that on Netflix. I'm going to see if I can find it free on YouTube. Maybe someone's uploaded it under the radar and, you know, the, the filmmaker hasn't noticed yet or there's no <laughs> copyright holder. And I've really liked discovering that because in a lot of cases it's, oh, this has been released nowhere else. So it's like, oh my God, I've been wanting to see this for 20 years. It's on YouTube finally. Yeah, that archival element. People forget that in the 80s and 90s, a rare movie before it got released, you might find it in the back of a magazine and pay 50 bucks or $80. And maybe it turned out it had shown on TV in the late 70s and someone recorded <laughs> it. And you're buying a bootleg VHS. 
Right. And I think that's what the YouTube generation doesn't realize. Just a generation before you, it was really hard to find a lot of this stuff. And I hate to say it, but, you know, people are, you know, a little more of that generation. We still have this sense of, oh, you know, we worked so hard to find these movies. And, you know, sometimes we waited years. And you guys have it all on YouTube now. It's like, well, you know, appreciate it. Yeah. You're so lucky to have all this at your fingertips. And I, I want to say, don't binge and overwhelm yourself so much that you don't appreciate some of these things. And that's what I think is the the bad part of not only YouTube, but having a million things on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all that. We're so privileged to have all those at our fingertips that maybe we need to back up a little bit and make some things special and make some things a little scarce like like when I was a kid, you know, they would show Wizard of Oz once a year on TV. Mm-hmm. And that was so special. It was usually around a holiday. And this is before home video. And it's like that felt so special because there's no other way to see that. But when you can see Wizard of Oz every day, <laughs> all day, it suddenly doesn't feel as special. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't have the answers. I think that it would be nice for people to sort of take a step back and, and appreciate it. Yeah. And like, a, I'll just say again, the thing I like about YouTube is the individual voices. And I like the homegrown. I think YouTube is quickly becoming very commercial. And I don't want to see that squeeze out just the every man kind of, you know, fan in his bedroom, fan in the corner with his all his videos on display showing his, you know, little funky little stuff he probably bought, you know, bought at the horror convention. I like that. that that's the stuff I want to see. Yeah, I think it really feels to me a lot like podcasts in general in that way, in that, you know, it sort of built up this underground thing where people you'd be like do you know podcasts and people would be like i don't know what the hell you're talking about and as it sort of became more mainstream people follow celebrities to their podcasts and so you know like when conan o'brien starts his podcast and all of a sudden everyone is like oh have you heard of podcasts Conan O'Brien needs a friend the first podcast and you know it just it can I think that that you're right in that there is sort of a similarity to what YouTube is doing where people see the availability or the opportunity for profit or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, these companies get their greedy little fingers all mixed up in it. And um, it does dilute the pool a little bit in a way that uh, I think is a real bummer. It is. And like someone like you, you know, you're not backed by NBC or some major movie studio. So you don't get like the boost that, you know, when Conan says, I'm going to do it, or when Jerry Seinfeld, you know, they just debut in episode one. They've got yeah. a million people listening. I really like the grassroots people that, you know, built it slowly based upon people just liking you, not because you're a well-known name, but because they like your content. I agree. <laughs> so And I think and no, no bias cool. at all on my end, I'm sure. <laughs> But you seem to be growing, too. So, I mean, what even category are you in? Because you actually have some stature now, too. I would certainly consider myself very, uh, very, very minor still at this point. Well, well, let me ask you one question, because I I told myself I wouldn't go into host mode. Well, I've been podcasting a little bit, too, and I was even telling someone earlier today, you don't know going into it how you'll feel, you know, six months into it, Mm. which is fine because you kind of learn it as you do it. And you learn what you like and what you don't like. 
And I, I envy you because you have a really sharp theme. And I think that was smart right off the bat. People know what they're getting into. But I'm just curious, what was the unexpected thing that happened? Even though you have this really good theme, you know, you, one guest, you know, you don't have co-hosts, you know, your format was very, you know, well drawn out. What's the big surprise now you know, going into it six months or a year or however long you've been doing this? I would say that the big surprise for me is how much it became about learning more about the guest through the conversation about the like cultural context of the movie. You know, I expected to get like more out of the guests as we went through the plot and talked about the, the exact things that they liked about the movie, sort of like the thematic things that connect with them. You just get so much of people's history when you get them talking about sort of where they were at a place in time when the movie came out or when the, you know, what it was like growing up and being afraid of horror movies or having an older sibling who really got them into it. And, sort of using horror as just a lev uh, like a leverage point to get more into their life i think has been surprising to me in terms of how much how much effectiveness it has compared i still think i do get a lot out of the the plot portion and finding finding out what people like through there but uh, in terms of their actual like past and personality, I think uh, it does surprise me how much uh, people are willing to open up. Well, I think when people talk about what they like, that does get them off their guard. I think everyone secretly wants to talk about their favorite things. Yeah. See, what I like about you is you always put a positive spin. And I think it's really tiresome when people are always, um, what's the word? Not throwing up false controversy, but, you know, always being the devil's advocate. Yeah, You know, always disagreeing just to get, you know, some kind of conversation going. I think it's okay to have like a love fest and have two people really both like something. I mean, that's really fun. That's fun to listen to. But one thing I've kind of evolved to is there is a passion in also talking about what we don't like. I think the thing is we don't want to go online and just diss other filmmakers, especially if you've done it. You know how hard it is, and I hate when people just totally dismiss a work, saying, oh, that sucks. You yeah. know, 100%. Because I know even if I don't like something, I can always find elements of it that I do like or can appreciate. Absolutely. So, I, yeah, and isn't that, you know, kind of symbolic of society now, just this overall, we dismiss everything. We This is one thing we don't like, so you are worthless as a human being across the board. And I think, you know, the movies are the same way. We can't just dismiss a movie, you know, just because there's, you know, even if we dislike 75% of it, we can still acknowledge that other part. Absolutely. And uh, I think you're right that there is some benefit to uh, having conflict or whatever you want to call it, sort of driving things. Uh, certainly, there are enough podcasts that make uh, a meal <laughs> out of that. And yeah, I just think that uh, it's it's nice for me to be able to contribute to the other side of things in that, you know, people people who like know me in real life would never be like, George never hates anything. George likes anything. <laughs> that would never be the case. People would never tell you that. But, you know, I'm willing to engage with people who are actually engaging with it on a level of talking about like cri criticisms that I might have. But if someone is just like, this movie sucks, it's garbage, you know, there's nothing redeemable about it, it just doesn't feel like they're really engaging with the movie. And mm -hmm. maybe that's because they weren't in the right environment to watch it. 
you know, maybe they had their phone out or whatever, or they were in a bad mood or whatever. But I just think that it's somebody who is willing to talk about what they like about something has a much more higher level of having engaged with it than someone who is just saying, like, I didn't like this thing. Well, if you're online, say you're on Reddit, and someone says, oh, I hate this movie. Prove me wrong. You know, we're in such that kind of thing now. But I think once you do declare something like that, from then on out, you will only look for information to support that. So if you go, oh, you know, I hate, there's something about Mary. So all you're going to do is find the things that you hate about that movie, which I liked. I thought it was funny. But I think there's the opposite too, though. If I hear about like a movie that is so praised by critics and fans and then I watch it and I don't like it, I almost feel like compelled to want to shout that out. Like, how can so many people love this? I hated this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, don't you ever see something you want to commiserate and say, please tell me you hated this too. I, you know, I need that validation that I'm not the only one that hated this. Yeah. I think that that's the sort of thing that I would do on a much more one-to-one level. One of the things that I really dislike about social media is that, you know, and I understand that this is the point of social media, but you know, everyone feels like they have to comment on every single thing that happens. And in Twitter, particularly, I think that sometimes it is okay to just let things pass over you. And if someone loves something and they're like, hey, I loved this movie, you know, I had a great time with it, then even if I disliked it, I might be like, I think they're wrong. <laughs> I might think that, or I might think less of their taste even for liking this thing that I disliked. But I mean, it just feels like so often everyone feels like they have to jump in and be like, no, you're wrong for liking it. Or even the opposite, where they're like, I didn't like this thing, you know, it just didn't connect with me uh, taste-wise. And everyone is like, no, you're wrong, this is the best thing ever, uh, and I'm jump- like, I'm jumping in your comments to tell you why that's the case. It just, it can be very frustrating to me from a third-person perspective, and so, uh, you know, I just try not to get into that, but certainly I think that... Uh, I would like text some friends and be like, wow, this movie sucked. Like, uh, you know, I watched it and, uh, you know, here's all the things that were laughably bad about it. And, you know, you should watch it as well. Or did you see it or whatever? I'll watch the Marvel movies when they come out, but I'm not, you know, just waiting desperately. And, you know, I'm not going to see it 10 times, you know, I'll watch them each once and go, okay, I can understand why some people are such rabid fans. And that's great. Or, you know, Star Wars is the same thing. I've not watched any of the latest Star Wars movies from the past few years. And, right. and that's fine, but I have no need to tear someone else down because they love them. And so I can totally understand, you know, especially big fan-based uh, ones that have such huge, you know, fan followings. Why would I want to shoot down anyone's enjoyment of that? That's just silly. And especially if there's a ton of them, obviously they're not all stupid. There's a reason why they really like it. And, you know, I can appreciate especially the special effects and just the craftsmanship of it. Absolutely. I think a lot of my frustration with stuff like that really stems from the corporatization of of it, you know, that – Every time I walk down the grocery aisle, I'm getting hit with uh, paper towels that have BB-8 droids on them and, you yeah. know, Hulk-based popcorn. And it's it's the sort of thing where 
if if it was just the movies existing and people loving them, you know, Star Wars in particular, I'm the same way with the Marvel movies where I'm like, these are fun. I like them. I go see them. Uh, I see them once, and mm-hmm. and that's usually it. But Star Wars in particular is a series that I just don't connect with. It's just, it just doesn't do anything for me. You know, I don't get online and rant about how The Last Jedi, you know, ruined <laughs> filmmaking. And I have a lot of friends who love the movies that I didn't like. And it's the kind of thing where it's like I, I get annoyed at the omnipresence of it but not at people enjoying it, I think, is sort of where I'm at with things like that. Well, remember the ones they made, but in the late 90s when they started the whole new crop? Right. Remember the little kid, and he played, like, the child version of... Oh, uh, Anakin? Well, uh, yes. Yeah. There's that little, that little boy, and then suddenly everyone said, he ruined you know, <laughs> yeah. the movie, he ruined the franchise, and I think, oh, God. Just lighten up. Stuff like that just makes me crazy. No, he was not really that bad, but the more this became a thing, everyone just found ways to pick it apart. Right. And I and I think at a certain point, that's the scary part of fan culture. It's like, why do you have such a need to be right about this? Why do you need to just crush this little boy whose parents probably pushed him into show business to begin with? He probably did the best he could, and now as an adult, he's hounded, you know, or if he, you know, he's at a a convention and people just accost him. You ruined Star Wars. I mean, it it's easy to see how child actors get messed up so frequently. You know that it's people are uh, people are wild out there. Yeah. See, the flip side to that though is I do like the crazed side of humanity, Mm -hmm. and I do like movies that you know, exploit that somehow. What's so funny about all this, and even the movie I picked we're going to talk about today, and I think just exploitation in general, I think we might see that as like a dying thing now. And I think when we look back at some of these movies from the 70s, they might be this weird time capsule that, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they might just seem so unthinkable. Not, not that people would even act that way, but that we would put this on film. People would be shunned if they you know, even made those 10 years from now. Yeah, I do think that there is an element of people now needing uh, the, the films that they watch or the media in general that they consume to reinforce their ethics as opposed to just depicting something. And, you know, I'm sure that the people who made stuff like Henry portrait of a serial killer, you know, don't advocate going out and murdering prostitutes. <laughs> it's really hard to make a horror movie without doing horrible things to your characters. Right. So horror in particular is really easy to attack because of that, but they've been doing that for 40 years, you know, the whole slasher cycle and they talked about violence against women and maybe rightfully so, you know. I mean, it's good to talk about those things and have an awareness, but at the same time, I always think of horror films as being these exaggerated fairy tales. You know, it is like Little Red Riding Hood. They're cautionary tales of be careful at night or else the boogeyman will get you. (laughs) It's not like we're celebrating the boogeyman. No, we're actually saying beware of the boogeyman. Don't do stupid things. Don't go out by yourself alone at night and wander off into the woods and dark back alleys. But we were talking about humor earlier. And I think the best horror filmmakers do have a sense of humor. You know, 
you always hear about the lack of sense of humor. People taking things so literally and kind of saying, no, wake up. Some stuff is meant to be funny. Please don't take everything at face value. And that's where people are always outraged because they take everything at face value. Right. There's no subtlety. And I think if you look back to, you know, Gore Pioneer, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Hell yeah. Blood Feast, a great. Yeah, you look at that now, it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's, who could take that seriously? <laughs> but he had a sense of humor about it. It's obvious when you watch it. Yeah. I'm sure people at the time were just outraged. You're going to scar the children if they see all this blood. <laughs> now, most eight-year-olds would watch that and think that's just tame. Yeah, especially because, you know, the way that it's, the blood is depicted on screen is not, it, it that technicolor paint sort of feeling of it it does feel so far removed from something that might come out and shock people today that it is it, you do have to sort of remind yourself like yeah this titillated people like this was a big deal right and i think even going then you know a decade or two later you see evil dead such a sense of humor to that yeah you know even though it was genuinely scary and had some really great scenes you just know the intent. These people are having fun making it. And I always like a fun horror movie. I don't necessarily want to go in to a movie to be, you know, permanently traumatized. You know, even I have my limits, but I don't want my limits to have to be everyone else's limits. Sure. Like if I can tell by the description, oh, like hostile, maybe I don't want to see, you know, someone's I don't know, fingers get snapped off realistically or, you know. But that doesn't mean I want to stop other people from seeing that. Yeah. But, the, but a good example, I resisted watching the Saw series for a long time. I thought, oh my God, I just don't want to see people get tortured. I, I'm not going to enjoy that. But when I finally saw it, it was so different than I thought. It had, you know, those set pieces and they were very well done. The special effects were very realistic. Yeah. But it had a real story, and it had some mystery to it, and it had police detectives. And yeah. I thought, wow, I would have missed out on this really cool series if I just judged it by this reaction to the so-called, so um, what do they call that at the time? Torture uh, porn. Torture porn. And just suddenly you get a term like that, and there's certain you know kind of prissy people out there. Just because they don't like something, they stamp it with torture porn because i don't like it no one else should be able to see this mm -hmm. um and i agree that the saw franchise is a lot of fun so it is a lot of fun check it out yeah saw six i mean for something that late in the game to be like for my opinion maybe one of the better like maybe the second best one after the first um yeah. saw six is really good so people should yeah. check those out. <laughs> no, I did. Uh, I'm, I, by three is when I thought it really, really got good. So three, four, five, six on you. Yeah. Um, but the last one, did you like the last one? I thought it was okay. You know, compared to a lot of the sort of franchise horror that was coming out at a similar time, it, uh, I thought it did a pretty okay job of at least keeping it going. You know, I get a little frustrated with prequel stuff sometimes mm -hmm. but uh i thought they did a pretty good job you know you know that movie or that series already has so much jumping around in time that uh they're, they're gonna they're... paint themselves into a corner sometimes <laughs> yeah. the yeah. plausibility of the superhuman you know travel to make all these uh tortures work yeah but i think that that is part of the joy of it is that it is so sort of fantastical and it feels like there's a, a heightenedness to it, to the whole thing, really. What I like about Saw is it just fulfills the promise of horror. This is what horror always promised us. 
Right. Especially you look back at the old Vincent Price movies and like Dr. Fives. This is so much like Dr. Fives, but it's like, okay, a few decades later with a bigger budget and no restraints. This is what Dr. Fives looks like. And I think that that will definitely come back into play for our discussion of this movie because uh, there's, uh, you know, there's something I want to at least talk about a little bit with that. But before we get to it, I did also want to see if you have just a favorite subgenre in general that you uh, prefer in horror. See, I heard you say this on other podcasts. I've been trying so hard. (laughs) I'm the type where, you know, I I won't think of it now. And then two days later, oh, my God. (laughs) But the one I was going to say is I'm going to call it water horror. Like, you know, Jaws could be called that. Jaws was monster horror because of the shark. But things that are underwater. Sure. Like, you know, so like. Yeah. So like when, you know, the woman's being pulled underwater at the beginning, because the whole thing is when you can't breathe or you have to hold your breath. Whenever I see that in a movie, that actually frightens me. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and uh, like when after Jaws came out, The Deep. Yep. And there's that great scene in it where they're, you know, scuba diving and that big eel comes out. Oh, that freaked me out. That'll get you every time. But the one that really got me was the abyss. I totally agree that the like just idea of being that far underwater is like petrifying. <laughs> it really it feels is. like an alien planet on our own planet. It is because it's so foreign because first of all, it's automatically kind of dark. And then, you know, if they've got a little light on top of their head or something, a little scuba light. But that member in the abyss, they're in that tank. And the water's building, building, and they know they're going to die. And then later they revive them. When it gets to that inch at the top and they just could barely breathe that last inch of air, that is so claustrophobic. Absolutely. Oh, man. Gives me the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. (laughs) So, I mean, can you think of any other water horror when it's not the monster, it's just being trapped underwater? Um, The Poseidon Adventure. (laughs) Yes, when they have to... Hold their breath and swim under that to get yeah. in, and then Shelly Winters doesn't make it. That's right. But they had to tell her husband that she did so he would go through and join her. It's interesting that it sort of comes in the midst of other subgenre sort of things. Like, uh, you know, the Poseidon Adventure is a disaster movie, but within that disaster movie, you get these individualized pockets of aquatic horror uh, or water Exactly, horror. or... How about any movie where someone's car goes off the highway into the water? Yeah. Oh, And man. Then, then the water starts coming up. Oh, you got to break the window and everything. And there's that, the like time crunch element. It really, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. Um, it's a lot of fun. Did you ever see Basic Instinct 2? I haven't even seen Basic Instinct 1, to be honest. Oh, my God. That is one of my all-time favorite movies. I, and look, again, I, it's one of those ones that people are always like, you got to see it. And I'm like, I'll get to it eventually. And I just haven't gotten to it. It has not become eventually yet, unfortunately. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. But the sequel came out so many years later, mm-hmm. and the critics just trashed it. That's another one where I'll fight for that to the end. I enjoyed it. It's a totally different movie. It doesn't have Michael Douglas. But as an opening scene with Sharon Stone in this really nice sports car with this guy, I don't know if they're start, like, starting to have sex or what, and or they're making out, or they're just... They're doing something, and he decides to gun it, and they're going really fast. And so it's kind of like, 
fast and furious with sex and then they go off the road and they go into the water i'm probably remembering all this wrong <laughs> but it's what sets the whole thing in motion and i think he dies when the car is going down or she escapes i can't remember but it's like they just combine all the elements at once car in the water drowning sex and speed wow there you go basically thing too. <laughs> sounds pretty damn good to me <laughs> But the movie that we're talking about today, the second killer baby movie on the best little horror house in Philly, right. we're talking about The Suckling from 1990, also known as Sewage Baby. Two great names, in my opinion. I'm curious which you prefer, since I do have a preference, personally. Well, I only first knew it as The Suckling, so when I first found out the other title, Sewage Baby, I go, oh my god. <laughs> then it made me think that... It almost sounded like a French film, and that was the closest they could come to a translation. <laughs> you know, like sewage baby would mean something in another language. Like, that's a common word they have. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that sewage baby is a great name. That's the one that I prefer. Um, I think I, that, I kind of am, too. Yeah. Just because the suckling, when you do a Google search, all these uh, suckling pig recipes come up. <laughs> They should have known that this far in the future <laughs> that Googling would be an issue. <laughs> and sewage, baby, that is just tasteless, disgusting. It's just a great filter that is just going to filter out all the people who you know will hate this movie. Right off the bat, they just know up front they're going to hate it. Yeah, ex I think that that's exactly it. That's what makes it click for me is that it does really feel like it's capturing the tone better than the suckling you know the suckling makes me think of the changeling and that sort mm -hmm. of like slow burn ghost story and that's not at all what the suckling is sewage baby makes me feel like yup we're in there i know exactly what to expect and you see a scene where the baby is in the sewer delivered on which is frankly <laughs> not always the case in these low budget horror movies where they really deliver on the premise like that <laughs> i know it's like the bait and switch this does not bait and switch not at all it was written and directed by francis terry uh, music by joseph terry so it was a family affair do you think the, there's a terry that did craft services i can only hope <laughs> So sort of the, the mother was like making hash browns and spaghetti for everyone. <laughs> yes, it just says Mrs. Terry as the craft service <laughs> But yeah, it's unfortunately the beginning and end of Francis's career in both aspects of filmmaking in terms of writing and directing. I'm really upset about that because I've been searching him out lately. The one thing I discovered on this new cleaned up re-release that came out like in uh, 2019. Right, yeah, from Vinegar. Which is Vinegar. funny. I discovered this on YouTube before that came out, like two months before that came out. Then I discovered they did this um, release, which I have to buy now because they tracked down Francis Terry and interviewed him for this new DVD. And I and I cannot find that online, so I'm going to have to like bite the bullet and buy this movie on DVD. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I went looking for it as well. I could not find it online. I'm so interested to see what he has to say about it because if he's willing to sit down for the conversation but not do like a commentary track or whatever like they usually do uh, with those Vinegar Syndrome releases, like I'm just so curious to know what he thinks about it and its reception and rehabilitation over the years and whatnot. Um, Here's one thing I'm curious Maybe he's a lot older than we think, because like 1990, that's over 30 years now. 
maybe he was older when he made it, so maybe he was 50. Yeah. Maybe he's like 80 now. Yeah, that seems very possible. We'll just have to see what he, see what's up on that, that, well, <laughs> that special feature. Here's another thing I'm curious. It was released in 1990. I would not be surprised. Maybe this was made in 85 and took him five years to edit and find a distributor. I would not be surprised if that was the case on this. So what I'll say up front that I found shockingly little information about this movie online. But one of the few things that I found was a contemporary review that said that it was filmed in 1989. So oh, okay. they did get it out there pretty quick. Um, I guess they had this con- the distribution contract ironed out ahead of time or whatever, you know, pre-sale sort of stuff. But um, yeah, there's just I, there really wasn't a ton of information about this, and it is interesting that he really did sort of vanish. He produced the movie Head Games in '96. That was the last thing that I could find that he had his hands in. So, and what was Head Games the one where they go through those challenges? I don't remember, to be honest. I looked at the synopsis, and then uh, it went right through my mind. <laughs> okay, I'll have to look that one up, too. Well, I think, ho- hopefully, he didn't do the commentary, you know, because he's in ill health. I would love to track him down someday, and just, first of all, to say... Please let me start a Kickstarter for you, so you can make a new movie. Come on, Francis, we're waiting. If you we got want it something, <laughs> and hey, we'll 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 get some good catering in. Maybe not <laughs> as good as your mother's uh, macaroni and cheese, but <laughs> we'll find a, a new Mrs. Terry to get great exactly. in there. Well, another thing that'd be interesting if you could talk to him is to think. You know, did like was his wife one of the actresses, or did he have like, you know, sisters or cousins, or just you know who were, who was the cast? Did he cast people he knew? Yeah, it it really is. It's the point of information on this movie is literally that like some of the characters have no cast name associated with them. Some of the cast members have no character name <laughs> associated with them. It does feel very much like we were talking about earlier. This is just some people who really wanted to make this movie, just forcing it together through sheer power of will. To me, it it really reads like um, because he played a cop in Flesh Eating Mothers in 1988. To me, it says, I had a great time on that movie. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this too. And I'm going to get people together and we're going to make this movie. Um, And like I said, that passion really does bleed through for me. Well, if we can track down that movie and watch it, we can get an idea of how old he was at the time. Also true. Very true. So if he's a cop, that could have been 20. That could have been a grizzled guy who had been on the force for 40 years. He could have been 60. Who knows? I mean, uh, Francis could be 100 now. (laughs) You know? We gotta know, Francis. Please reach out. <laughs> he could be the Betty White of horror directors. <laughs> He's up there on Mount Old Exploitation Makers. More. <laughs> well, there's another credit because I was IMD being him too, and and I think this is the guy that actually played in the costume, like when the suckling is full height. Right. That that actor went on to become, I think, an editor at Fangoria magazine. There you go. Did you read that credit? Yeah, that's horror at his core, right there. And you know, 
there are there are some people who who did stuff. You know, like you said, that guy went on to Fangoria. The the creature effects were done by Dean Mersill, who worked on some of the later Critters movies and Face Off. I love the effects in this too, which I hope we talk about. That's one of the things that gives me undying love for this is the amazing uh, creature effects. Right. That's the thing is that it is a really fun creature. It it kind of gives me like pumpkin head light vibes a little bit (laughs) um it's some really nice work and it does feel like most of the budget must have went to making sure that all of the effects and everything looked as good as they do the estimated budget that i found was fifty thousand dollars that feels like more than they probably really had. Mm-hmm. But that was like film stock and a camera rental. They, it seems like they really took that money and invested it wisely into the creature effects, the things that are going to stick with you. Mm-hmm. And that when you go to tell your friends about it, you're not like, oh, yeah, this set dressing was so nice. You're like, there was a crazy suckling sewage baby monster that had a crazy umbilical cord that comes out and stabs people. Like, that's the things that get people excited and invested in the movie. So, And that's a real smart thing that Francis Terry did is he knew to get the effects right. And you can tell, like, the lighting was always good when the effect was there. Right. I mean, that was the best lit sewer I've ever seen on camera. <laughs> it was not that well lit. No. Certainly not. <laughs> and, you know, reviews reviews of this movie were prim- primarily negative. Like I said, um, I found that one contemporary review. It settled on enthusiastic but unimpressive was their verdict. Things get a little dicier with modern reviews, ranging from I can't believe they made this, much less that I watched it, to best horror movie ever made, which you'll <laughs> find out about right on this very program. See, when people say worst movie ever made, come on. Have they seen like three movies in their whole life? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a level of competence for sure. There's a level of competence to this that it does feel like it would be really hard for anyone who has actually explored the depths of bad movies <laughs> to, uh, to, to say something like that. That is so naive. And I hate when they see like when Showgirls first came out. I knew that it was campy and over the top. I still thought it was very entertaining, and that was before the rediscovery of it and people going, oh, one of the best bad movies ever. It's like, no, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, there's bad, there's incompetent. I mean, this had enough to it that you can't just dismiss this whole movie. There's a fun plot, there's fun sequences and showy Vegas dancing scenes and, you know, all this crazy stuff going on. I mean, it was not an incompetently made movie. No, definitely not. And and I hate when people say, you know, the lead actress, oh, she was horrible. No, she wasn't. I thought she gave an okay performance. She's traumatized through the whole thing. Like, I don't know what people want from her. Yeah, what are they judging this on? What do they expect out of this? And then they're praising Marvel movies and Star Wars left and right. And I've seen some kind of just okay performances in there, but they're not they're not under the microscope with these other people. They're just viciously looking for things to attack. Yeah. But and, and I think it also gets into this whole thing of so bad it's good genre, which I have very mixed feelings about. Because I love the So Bad It's Good, but I don't think it's so bad. I th- I still think it has something to it. Because when stuff is so bad, 
there's no grit to it. There's just nothing to comment on. These movies we're talking about, there's stuff, you know, every 30 seconds there's something to comment on or to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I I also sort of struggle with that. I, I think that I usually come down on the side of it does exist so bad it's good, but that people misuse that as a label. Because, I mean, there's a there's a point where I'm like, even if I am enjoying this, it's maybe not what they were striving for. You know, they didn't necessarily accomplish the execution of their inspiration to the level that they want. And maybe something like um, Scary Tales. It's an unabashed ripoff of something like Creepshow. It's someone loved that. They said, I'm going to do the same damn thing. You know, we're going to do a little couple vignettes with a little Crypt Keeper sort of uh, guy to narrate or, or not narrate, but like sort of lead you through. And it's I love it. I think it's an incredible movie. I have an absolute blast watching it. Is it good? I, I don't know. You know, I, I struggle with something like that because I think that there is an element of accepting the flaws of it makes it a more honest reaction for me at Mm -hmm. least to be like you know i understand that this this element that i am enjoying is not what most people would consider to make for a good movie and i think that that's really sort of where where the so bad it's good lies is in people executing to the best of their ability and that execution just falling short here's a dividing line for me on the so bad it's good i think people are assuming that those filmmakers were deluded yeah like they thought oh i'm making a good movie but they they just didn't know how to make it i think that most of these people are not deluded i think they are just trying to make a good movie i don't think they think they're orson welles I think they're just having fun with it. And the thing about Sewage Baby is, I think Francis Terry knew exactly what he was making. He was not deluded. And there's several just overtly funny parts to it where I know that he had a sense of humor. I'll tell you what I'm disliking a lot more. And I I think on your last podcast, you talked a little bit about art house horror. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the whole topic. I heard you touch upon that. So I've been thinking about that. I resent a lot more art house horror that is pretentious mm-hmm. and humorless than maybe some low zero budget guy who does have a little sense of humor that's at least entertaining you. If he has to pull a trick here, a trick there, you know, he's at least trying to do something to keep you going throughout the movie. Yeah. What I increasingly resent is just people who think a somber tone the entire movie with people not talking people staring people posing it's like give me something if this is a (laughs) horror movie then slash a throat you know let's have a monster come out give me something i just am am so not fed up but maybe that's why i'm just going back to the zero budget stuff for the time being it's almost like it's refreshing me it's cleansing my palate from this overly serious art house horror the the essence of what makes a good quote unquote bad movie for me is the earnestness. If someone is trying to make a good movie and they are just like I'm working within my boundaries and within my resources, there's a there's a good chance that I'm going to be able to get something out of it. Something like 
Sharknado or whatever, where there is that sort of corporate feel to it, where it's very cynical. To me, that's not so bad. It's good. To me, that's boring and bland and, like I said, cynical. And I, I do think that there is a joy to these low-budget movies like this that can get lost in these um, self-serious art house horror movies. I think in particular that some of them do get so caught up in building an atmosphere that they forget to puncture it with, you know, some sort of action or whatever to get that release and then build back up to that atmosphere again. And like you said, with these zero budget movies or low budget movies or whatever they do sometimes have to pull little tricks or whatever to keep people invested but they are they they have that freedom to experiment because they don't have the studio budget or whatever that is breathing down their neck they don't have the money men sort of hamstringing them the entire way along Mm -hmm. so like in the suckling when knowing they've got this micro budget and they're ripping holes out of the wall or they're like damaging their location. I watch and think, Oh my God, they're going to have to pay for this. Or, you know, this is probably a big chunk of their budget, you know, when they ripped out the door. Right. Yeah. Well, here I'll put you on the spot. So from, I don't know if you've seen it recently or been IMDb, but in your own words, how would you describe the plot synopsis of Sewage Baby? Um, boy, I would say that this high school or college couple, the teens, late teens, decide to go. So the boy wants to have an abortion. The girl, she wants to carry the baby to term and then give it up for adoption. And it's about that him tricking her into getting this abortion and the ramifications uh, thereof. Uh, you know, and, and sort of um, what happens to everyone involved in this procedure. Well, that's a good uh, way to say it without giving any spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> See, what hooks me from the beginning is she goes to get an abortion in a suburban brothel. And it's yes. not even like a brothel on the outskirts of town. It's just a regular suburban neighborhood, some dumpy house you would see, you know, with neighbors breathing down their neck. And, oh, in the upper floor, she just happens to have a bedroom that she's converted into this dirty, bloody uh, abortion operating room. Really early on, too, when the guy comes in, uh, the, the like businessman, the John, comes in that mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time with throughout the movie and uh, you know he like strides up and he like m- like messes with his tie he readjusts his tie and he's <laughs> like go on in she's waiting for you and you're like it just really sinks in for you that this is a combination <laughs> brothel abortion clinic in the middle of like the this suburb the suburban na- uh, neighborhood it do- it's so quick to be like yeah this is wild right and uh it does hook you, and it do- you're like, all right, I understand sort of what we're going for here. And see, the thing is, if someone can't see the inherent humor in that right off the bat, <laughs> it, it's so over the top. It's not just a brothel, but it's a brothel <laughs> with a low-budget abortion clinic. Yep. <laughs> and I think, like, if John Waters made that, he could just take that basic setup and make this a comedy. Right. You would only have to tweak the tone just a tiny bit, and this would be a John Waters comedy. But what I love about it is, and these are the imperceptible things, when people just look at a plot 
and scrutinize it, they're missing out on all of Francis Terry's brilliance, which is, first of all, where they shot it. It's like the ugliest interior. It's like <laughs> it's trapped in like the early 70s. You know, the stereotypical shag carpet, these big gaudy curtains on the wall. It's, it's just this depressing 70s interior that has just not changed in 30 years. And just what they're wearing, they're in this time warp, like they're all trapped in 1975. Even their clothing and their hairstyles, it's just really weird. Yeah. And even the couple, you know, the woman and her preppy boyfriend, he's like trapped in the idea of preppy from 1982, like the preppy <laughs> handbook. He's not like going into the 90s, it's all very regressive. Yeah. And I think that's part of the charm of the movie that he doesn't care. The filmmaker has all these weird things. And then the acting is on many different levels. I like it. I think there's three categories of acting in it. One, there's just some bad actors. And unfortunately, it's a couple of the prostitutes, uh, the characters of the prostitutes. But there's one who's really good, Candy. Oh, my God. We'll talk yeah, about her. Fun. Then there's sort of just, yeah, decent actors like uh, the madam. Uh, Big Mama. Mama. She's a competent actress, but then you get like one, like the the live wire Axel, who's kind of like the just unhinged guy. I thought he was really good in this. Yeah, it is. It is a little unbalanced, I'll say, uh, in terms of the acting quality, but it does range into certainly an acceptable level for a lot of them. I agree that the character of Axel is pretty fun, and having him serve as this like over-the-top live wire that you were talking about, compared to Sherman, who is this sort of like cool and collected ex-army guy, I think that the performances do work against each other in a in a way that elevates them, where you know it's clearly very intentional. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, in watching it again this morning, this is what dawned on me. Sewage Baby is actually a home invasion movie masquerading as a monster movie. Wow, you're not wrong. Except the thing is, the home invasion, those people are already within. Mm -hmm. It's just that you have these outsiders, the couple coming in for the abortion. They're kind of like home invaded, even though they're <laughs> going into someone else's home. Yeah. And then you do have this wild guy, Axel. He's the typical home invasion villain. Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting that way that... Uh they're sort of coming onto his turf and turning it sort of on its head that way. And uh, I mean, as we've sort of been alluding to this entire time, there is a, a lot of comedy or comedic elements in this movie. And that is sort of where the cult following has developed a little bit for it. People coming to it. I, I saw a lot of comparisons to trauma and stuff like that when I was doing some research and, you know, it's understandable abortions, I would say are a, pretty taboo subject even today to handle with the indelicacy of something like sewage baby but you know it, it also has that blood and guts and creature effects and there's irreverent nudity and humor and so it does sort of fit into that type of movie the, the trauma style stuff i think the thing that keeps it from being totally tasteless is the fact that baby is never shown being realistic mm -hmm. you always have that cartoonish separation and I think that is what allows you to enjoy it. Like even, you know, first it's kind of the aborted fetus. Oh, we can give away spoilers, can't we? Yeah. So the baby's aborted. Um, then someone flushes it down the toilet. And then it's like, I'm sure this is not how our sewage system works. But then it just, 
goes down and then goes down this bigger pipe like a, a slide and just plop <laughs> lands in this bigger <laughs> pipe with these shafts of light just hitting it perfectly. And yeah. of course, there's no sewage. There's just a little tiny bit of pristine water. <laughs> Nothing too, you know, messy, which is kind of ironic. This is like the most beautiful, pristine sewer system you've ever nice. seen. It is nice. And then he's got this face <laughs> with these little wrinkles and these big eyes. <laughs> and what I love is when then you see above just a vat that says toxic waste on it. Oh, it's fantastic. Which in real life, have you ever seen a vat of toxic waste that says generic toxic waste no it's so funny to me it really makes me feel like daredevil and the and the teenage mutant ninja turtles like it just feels like this is a slightly adjacent origin story yeah the green ooze and and what i like is you just see that once you see some of it drip onto it and then no other explanation we just that's it take it as fact that if a few drops of toxic sludge fall on an aborted fetus Within one hour, it will grow to full-size proportions and develop big rows of alien teeth. That's classic toxic waste, as far as I'm concerned. And I love And there's no explanation. And see, that's where with Francis Terry, who also wrote this in addition to directing, he didn't bog down the story with, oh, this old burial ground, or oh, this old, you know, folk legend of da-da-da. No, we see... Five seconds of toxic waste power we know, there. We know what toxic waste does. You show it, that's all you need. <laughs> I think a lot of aspiring screenwriters could learn a lot from this script. I think that there is a lot of really great concepts, and, and it doesn't have a ton of bloat to it at all. You know, like you said, it's five seconds. He knows that we know what this means, you know, and he, and he is leveraging that in a really smart way. There's just something kind of beautiful, like when the creature's in the sewer and it just has that shaft of light on it and the movement of the body, it's real subtle and the eyes and the facial things. These were really good little animatronic. I don't know how they did it. If there was like a guy behind, like a hand puppet moving it, but it, however they did it, it was pretty magical. Yeah, it, honestly, I wrote in my notes that it kind of reminded me of uh, the Son of Man in, or the Son of Earth, <laughs> excuse me, and from Begotten, in terms of the like convulsing and and like weird noises coming from it in a way that it is comedic, but also there's like a, a level of it that unnerves you when like seeing the like pulsating under the skin and everything, despite the fact that it does look, you know unrealistic like you said yeah being both unrealistic and seeming kind of human yeah which i liked well the other thing i like about the movie besides this amazing you know creature which changes throughout and gets different sizes but is the characters and the interaction he did a really good job of how each character has different relationships with other characters and most of the prostitutes are kind of generic but then there's one like the older jaded candy and again, she's got this wig, and she just looks like this cocktail waitress from the 70s, you know, transported two decades into the future. Like, you know, <laughs> she hasn't changed in 20 years, but she's not afraid to stand up to people. And she's kind of that fun character. You just want to hear her next line, and you want to hear her stand up to the crazy guy with the gun that's threatening everyone. And, you know, how far is she going to push people to their limit? No, absolutely. And uh, the, I, will, I will say, 
just jumping back uh, a second, the one thing that sort of separates this from Troma for me, and that I think is really interesting about this movie, is that it sort of takes that Troma methodology and applies it to really classic exploitation movies in terms of like the hygiene films of the 30s and 40s where a movie that focused on sex or violence or whatever was gussied up under the pretense of this you know doctor's note and a lecture (laughs) and it was a morality tale and this movie very much fits into that with its on the surface anti-abortion message and you know sort of using that pre and extramarital sex message as the cautionary tale that you were talking about before. So we've got this sort of interesting spoof that is both straight-laced in its handling of classic inspiration, but tongue-in-cheek in its execution of that. Very much so. And if you want to do it from the point of view, if you're identifying like with the main woman, because it's kind of told through her point of view at the beginning. So she and her preppy boyfriend, it's also like this whole class thing. Oh, you know, if you get, you know, pregnant out of wedlock... You're going to have to go to that scary brothel abortion place with all, you know, the people we always warned you about. And you'll end up just like them, you know, yeah. if, you, if you don't change your ways. And I kind of like, you know, that the candy character reads them right off the bat, you know, don't think you're better than us, you know. <laughs> and there's a, kind of that undercurrent of those two. And then also the main John who comes in the suit, you know, he goes, I'm a businessman. <laughs> so it's. So once all hell breaks loose and they're trapped in the house, it's this big class struggle, too. Yeah, uh, I, I think that it's it's just interesting to me that, it, you know, people will sort of look at this and just see the sort of budget. And uh, there's so much more going on under the surface of it than that. See, another thing about this kind of movie, when they're the nasty, irritating people, you're thinking, OK, they better have a good death. Because they're setting you up like, oh, the, you know, the person who whines or is really mean. And and this kind of fulfills some of that. But then some people get killed off a little too early. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, if they, I thought they were going to hold out to the end and have, you know, an even bigger death scene with someone. But the one that really shocked me in this was one of the prostitutes who accidentally kills another prostitute because they think it's the monster on the other side of a door. And then the the businessman eggs her on, shoot it, shoot it, you know. So she's shooting blindly through the door. Then the door opens and it's her friend who's been all shot up and she dies. And she's so traumatized that pretty soon after that, they come back to the room. Suddenly, this woman's got the gun and she blows her brains out. And that was kind of shocking. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, there were. I'll be honest, there were a couple of times where I was kind of taken aback by just how the plot shook out. And um, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. As we leave 2020 in the rear view and head into 2021, I think we've all earned a resolution to treat ourselves. And nothing says treat like tuckins, the inside out, all in one s'more. With a crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate and wrapped inside a fluffy marshmallow on a stick, it'll be love at first taste. And there's all kinds of great flavors that you can mix and match, including original, cookies and cream, peanut butter cup, and even some rad seasonal flavors. Plus, unlike a regular s'more, tuckins can easily be roasted indoors or out, over the fireplace, the fire pit, even the stovetop will do the trick. And they stay delicious for up to three months in the freezer. 
So head to Tuckins.com and use the offer code BEST20 to get a whopping 20% off your order while also letting Tuckins know you heard about them from the Best Little Horror House. That's T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com and BEST20 for 20% off. So make the new year a sweet one with the no mess inside out s'more. And now back to the show. I guess that this is as good of a segue to actually start talking about the plot as any. So to get into the actual movie, we get this very sort of Texas Chainsaw opening uh, about the macabre and sensational attack that took place on April Fool's Day, 1973 in Brooklyn, New York, which this does not look like Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, does the, that opening thing say 1973? Yeah. Oh, so they were actually trying to go for a period, period piece. piece. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, then I take all that back. Then they just nailed it. Yeah. Hey, even better. Even better than we thought. But yeah, and it says uh, the 12 inhabitants of a brothel slash underground abortion clinic are killed and only one survived. Uh, Her tale is so wild that they assumed she was crazy and they put her in an asylum and they threw up their hands and said, we give up. (laughs) And (laughs) this movie is here to set the story straight and tell her side of things. And, you know, again sort of tying it back to those hygiene films, the sort of playing this as a true story, I think really sort of helps us to sort of frame it in the same way as those classic exploitation movies. Yeah. And I think it also adds a little humor right off the bat. The so, you know, the faux reality of it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the description's so over the top, you know, daring you, you know, to believe it. Yeah. What was that other one? Like legend of boggy Creek. Yeah, that's you know, a throwback to those seventies. You know, almost like semi-documentary. You know, this is all based on something true. Sure, Blair Witch. You know, something like that. Blair Witch. Um, The thing about the opening hospital scene, it has another kind of fun horror thing I like. Not just one, you know, fake nightmare, but the second fake double fake out. It's like something bad happens, you bolt up in bed, oh, oh it was all a dream, and then no, no it's a double one. fake out. It's incredible. Gets me every time. I love it. I, I will also say, as far as the introduction goes, um, I can understand gripes about dramatic tension of confirming a body count, but for a movie like this, where you're coming to it for a certain with a certain expectation, you're like, wow, I'm guaranteed 12 kills in an 89-minute movie. That's a kill every seven minutes on average. So that's a pretty good average. That's pretty good average. That's the kind of thing that really gets me excited for a low budget movie like this, that they are not just standing around, that there are actually going to be set pieces and effects and deaths and everything like that. Um, I think it's a really great promise to set up and, and make sure that people are interested. See, in spite of knowing all the death count at the beginning, you still think her boyfriend's going to make it, you know, right up until his death. I, I think he, somehow he's got to survive this. And it's that's a shock, too, even though you know it's coming. Yeah. And like you said, we open up on her sleeping. A guy walks in, drugs this girl, and then abducts her to a hospital where she wakes up. And it almost feels like an homage to Jacob's Ladder, where she's like being wheeled through the hospital. But it's more like a hellspital where the nurses are bloody and their <laughs> boobs are out and they're carrying axes. <laughs> And if you watch that and think this director does not have a sense of humor, come on, come on. Exactly. I, th- I think you're totally right in that it is very evident from the beginning. I think, yeah, this is the kind of movie where it does sort of self-select an audience, especially, you know, going back to it now. Maybe that wouldn't be the case when it was just being released. But I feel like if you come to this movie and you're like, I'm watching a movie 
called uh, Sewage Baby, and she the opening scene is her getting wheeled through this hospital. <laughs> like it's so easy to be like, you know what, this one's not for me. I'm done, nice and early. <laughs> or to be like, yes, this is this is what I'm looking for from this movie. I'm engaged. I, I know the tone that they're going for. It's a great opening sequence to confirm whether your audience is on board or not like another subtle thing about the hospital is the two doctors walking down the hall commenting on her i thought that was funny too you know it's just those little subtle things if you take it at face value it's kind of a throwaway but there's just kind of a little off and funny about the doctors but i think another thing that upsets people about the movie it's not just bad acting as they call it it's just different tones in each of the actors. Like this main woman who gets the abortion, she is so earnest and sincere. She could be like in John Carpenter's Halloween as one of, you know, Laurie's friends. Yeah. I mean, she could be in a very mainstream kind of thing. Yet the main guy, Axel, the wild guy, I mean, he could be in Taxi Driver. I mean, he's <laughs> so intense. He's at this Robert De Niro level. Yeah. And then you have... Uh, Big Mama and Candy, and they're right out of a John Waters movie. Yeah, Big Mama does feel like a divine sort of homage. She does. But here's here's the deal with something like this is, if someone remakes it, especially a hipster, they would totally get that tone wrong. They, they would bring in people to camp it up. Mm-hmm. You either have that innately as a person or you don't. Yeah. And it's kind of like, even with Meryl Streep, who I like a lot, and she can do good comedy, even when she's doing pretty good comedy, that's Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. You know, Devil Wears Prada, I like that. I thought she pulled it off, but it's still Meryl Streep. Sure. If Meryl Streep played Big Mama, <laughs> who, she could probably pull it off, but it'd still be Meryl Streep, you know? Yeah. You need someone who's just innately kind of trashy. You can't fake trashy. <laughs> Well, what's that new one out there? Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, yeah. Um, Glenn Close. Where Glenn Close is trying to, you know, this Ivy League trained actress. Because, yeah. you know, Glenn Close, she's very Ivy League in real life. Playing, you know, this woman who I guess it's a testament to her ability. But at a certain point, you don't want to see an Ivy League Hollywood actor play that. You know, I, or especially in a low-budget movie. I totally agree, you know. Someone like that coming in to make a movie that's like, poor people are people too, you know, it feels very dismissive and very talking down as opposed to something where, you know, using people who might actually come from a neighborhood like the one that they're depicting, it's much more authentic to the experience and helps to make a better movie in addition to not feeling as gross. Like I said, I, I it just feels very dismissive. Mm-hmm. That's another joy of low-budget filmmaking because they can't afford recognizable actors. You get to lose yourself in a movie in a different way. Right. You know, when you see... Um, I'm trying to think of something I've seen recently. Well, actually, that movie um, on Netflix, the miniseries Queen's Gambit, part of the fun of that was not having, like, at least to me, a recognizable lead. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone felt kind of new and, you know, unique. I just knew them as those characters. I didn't have any baggage. Although I, I later learned that actress had been in The Witch 
Right. Yeah. Anya Taylor Which, Joy. She's um. She's been in a few things. She was in Split. Oh, the, oh I think I read that. Yeah. It so, makes yeah. me want to go back and see all her movies now because she's such. She's great. An amazing actress. Yeah. She's really great. The whole thing about casting. Okay. And that's one thing I like about a no-budget film, where maybe they can't afford the best or afford anything, but sometimes you get the best amateur casting. And maybe that's the only movie they're going to make, because like we were saying, these could be the only credits a lot of these people ever had. Yeah. But there's just something about when you cast a person that either looks the part or just has something weird about them. It's kind of entrancing. Yeah, and authentic charisma, and you, uh, you, can't, you can't buy that. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think the one who did it for me was like Candy, and she had the best lines. And it's just like when you're thinking, oh quick let's switch the scene back to candy i can't wait to see her next insult you know for the suited guy or i just can't wait to see her spar with the guy with the gun and or big mama i just loved it throughout the movie when everyone goes what's happening big mama what's happening <laughs> yeah everyone's like, like, like big mama will know everyone says <laughs> big mama will know what to do and it's like what the hell how's big mama gonna know what to do about this She's right next to them, <laughs> witnessing it all for the first time, too. And she's actually kind of pretty ineffective when it comes down to it. Hey, she's a steadying presence. <laughs> big Mama, come help me, Big Mama. Yeah. And it almost turned into, like, a cat on a hot tin roof. Yeah. <laughs> Last Big Daddy. Big Daddy will know what to do. <laughs> Didn't you kind of want them all to suddenly, like, have southern accents? And... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It is midway for no explanation that it's out there in the deep south somewhere. <laughs> it is interesting that it does kind of just feel like suburban town USA. You know, they say that it's in Brooklyn, but it does kind of feel like it could be anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Again, sort of like playing into that exploitation element of basing it on a true story, making it feel like this could be in your backyard if you made the wrong decisions or whatever. Well, one thing I'll say for Francis Terry is. Even though it's a low-budget movie, he occasionally comes up with really good camera work. And I think this was, was this shot on 16mm? I'm almost guessing it was. It looked like it. Because um, it's pretty grainy. Yeah. And, and there were a couple of the cigarette burns that showed up a few times as well. Yeah, they probably got an old drive-in print. Yeah. <laughs> but I think on low-budget film like that is, unless it's really well-lit, it's always going to look grainy and even extra bad. And the whole thing about low-budget filmmaking is you don't have time to set up a shot or you don't have the right lighting equipment. But in the times when you can tell he did have a little bit of time, he could execute a good camera movement. He could light somebody decently. He yeah. could have some good focus. And so you almost think, well, if you didn't have time constraints... Could a filmmaker like that with a budget, three months to shoot it instead of, you know, three days, could he actually be a pretty competent filmmaker? And Terry, we'll find out when we get that Kickstarter going, man. Reach out. I, I, I so want to do that. See, and I would say do something totally different. Don't remake Sewage Baby. It doesn't need any fixing. Right. You know, what could he do now? Like for the past 30 years, what's his passion project that he's just been brewing on? Sure. Like, um, what's that guy who just did, he did hardware, Richard Stanley. That's you know? right. Oh, that, what? 30, a couple decades later. That's right. He got his HP Lovecraft movies and frankly it ruled. So, and he got Nick Cage to be in it. Hell yeah. Who, who, who could ask for more? <laughs> 
You know, I saw the documentary about the Dr. Moreau thing. and Goodness gracious, what a picture. I can't believe that documentary. <laughs> it's, it's I was a li- if it's all true, I was a little upset with Val Kilmer. Yeah, Val seemed like a bit of a jerk, I gotta he say. He did. The flip side is, I could see Richard, you know, he his first movie was very small, so he didn't have to wrangle a big casting crew. It's intimidating to go out there and suddenly have a big Hollywood crew and, you know, when it's people that are just assigned to you sure. that you didn't, you know, hire personally yourself. So I, I can see the intimidation factor there, but in a way, the story of the making was one of those weird things that became more entertaining than the movie itself. Yeah, uh, without a doubt, I would say that that's the case. See, here's what I think would be really cool. And Francis Terry could get a, an advisory credit on this. This is what a hipster would probably do and ruin. But if you get a non-hipster, just cool filmmaker and make a movie about the making of Sewage Baby. Wow. But make Francis the main character. So pull back that camera, see the man behind the camera, learn what was going on in his life. Wouldn't you just be fascinated? I'm on board for that. Absolutely. And then if we're going to like doctor some of it, you know, they always like make up things. We just have to make it that his mother was scraps purchases, <laughs> even if she wasn't in real life. Just fabricate yep. that. That's, that's like, our contribution. Like, and like she's every now and then she like gets into the frame. <laughs> she's supposed to be off camera, but she kind of gets into it. She's like, oh, so sorry. Oh, it's sorry, son. Terry. I just wanted to bring you some snacks. Or they're low on blood, so they grab her pasta sauce and just <laughs> dump it on the actor there you go that's the perfect perfect in so no francis the blood's run here let me help you <laughs> so this uh, our main character she like i said on imdb she is credited as the girl i read elsewhere that her name is uh, michelle so i'm gonna call okay. her michelle just for the sake of having a name to call her and uh, she's awake like we said she's getting wheeled through this hospital She's awake on the operating table, and the surgeon goes to open her up, and bam, it was a nightmare after all. And this is when we get the the double fake out. She wakes up, and I really like the transition from this over-the-top nightmare hospital with the score of this dude just slamming on the keyboard. A lot of heavy piano. <laughs> yeah, and it cuts to this silent m- mundanity of reality and then you know that's also punctured by the double fake out because you know she closes the mirror bam there's the doctor again he cuts her throat they got you twice great to pull it so early and using the pendulum swing between those two sort of tones i think really does let you know that this is very deliberate what he's doing with uh, the rest of the movie as well. And the music, when it first starts, is almost like an homage to John Carpenter's Halloween. You know, the kind of piano synth blend. But then the piano kind of takes over more, which I like. It doesn't become just this predictable synthesizer score. Yeah. And another thing, if it got remade, they'd ruin it with a horrible retro synth soundtrack. <laughs> And again, but there's just this raw little punctuating soundtrack, but it's not overbearing. It just punctuates, and it does set a tone there. And I think nowadays, I like hearing stuff that's not all homage. I like hearing someone use a different instrument than just a synthesizer. No, I totally agree. And uh, so she wakes up one more time. This is now her third wake up. (laughs) Third wake up. (laughs) And uh, she's in a hospital again, but a real one this time. 
and some doctors sort of exposition at us about how she has hyper rem neurosis that uh, keeps her from sleeping restfully, staying asleep for two hours max. And it is kind of funny to me that uh, this, like, you know, like we said, you sort of get the people who are available to you. And this older gentleman is like, yes, being an intern keeps me rather busy. <laughs> it's like, okay, guy, you should have progressed further than an intern at this point. But this this does a great setup for the flashback. We get, we flashback to a week ago when this uh, whole ordeal went down. And the young woman uh, walks up to this brothel slash abortion clinic with her beau, uh, who just wants her to listen to the doctors, he says. Even though she's insisting that she wants to bring the baby to term and put it up for adoption, uh, explicitly claiming that abortion is wrong, she says. Uh, so there is, like I said, that sort of uh, morality tale that sets this up as very classic, something to to play around with and and to bake the spoof into the text a little more. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting too is when she goes in there just to see what it's like, how they just slip in, you know, that little drugged drink. Yeah. You know, when Big Mom, oh here, have a little sip of this, and then like two seconds later, she's groggy. <laughs> then in five minutes, she's on the table and they're aborting the baby. But one thing about the movie is that she doesn't make a big enough deal about this to her boyfriend. Like, you tricked me. Yeah. <laughs> you drugged me and aborted this baby without my consent. Oh, it's super fucked up. <laughs> it's really an awful thing that he does. And then on top of that, she just had an abortion. And they don't put her in bed. They prop her up on a couch. <laughs> just to sit upright oh you'll be okay in a few minutes <laughs> i i was really thinking about that when the businessman later on is like trying to chisel through the door and he's like why isn't she doing it and i was like she had an abortion like <laughs> an hour ago dude <laughs> i know talk about insensitive she i mean he doesn't look at anyone else but her the one who's had major surgery yeah. well that gets me uh, first chisel through the door which is the stupidest idea. I mean, wouldn't you just take a chair and smash a window first? It was, there's, it's a bad idea, the chiseling, to be sure. I mean, that's where it lost me a little bit. And then he's like trying to chisel at this weird angle and it's like the most efficient. And he's like sitting down and, <laughs> um, but, but, oh, how about the big trunk on the rope? And they're trying to battle ram the door down. <laughs> hey. it's at least an effort i guess it's something see that was a cool visual however they did it but to me that set up the expectation someone would be trapped against the door Mm. and i thought if i cheated that they didn't (laughs) yeah battle ram a person with that trunk that that's the one thing that uh will be improved on in the remake in the inevitable remake. right i'll say francis terry i just assume budget and time would not allow it Exactly. And this this guy that we were talking about, or excuse me, no. So the other guy who goes to open up the door, this is Sherman. We don't, again, they're terrible at communicating people's names. A lot of these names. Right. I had to and and okay, Sherman and Axel, it's kind of like they're both, I mean, there's a madam, but they're both kind of pimpish and they're both kind of bodyguard, yeah, like security. security. And I think Axel is redundant. But he's just there because Mama June raised him, even though that's not her own son. I think Sherman has the official position. Right. Axel resents the hell out of it because nobody likes him. He tries to insert himself to get some authority, but he's just like this big, violent loser. He sure is. I also 
so so Sherman is going to take them around back to the abortion clinic. Or right? he literally says, like, we have to go through the like, door. D- don't sully our reputation <laughs> by coming through our front door. <laughs> um, and then so this businessman walks up to use the other services, and I have to point out this guy's outfit because it is shocking to me. It is a baby blue suit with a brown dress shirt and a garish orange and blue paisley tie. It is this outfit is just like I said, shocking. It's it's uh, a hell of a outfit that they chose for him. Sort of like a, a prom outfit for a guy in 1973. <laughs> hey, you know what? Again, nailing that uh, nailing that period piece. What I want to know is that same guy. Is that the same guy who's in it later that tries to chisel the door? Is that the same yeah, character? That's what I took it as. But when he's chiseling the door, he has a different suit. He has oh like a regular God. dark suit. You're right. So I wonder if that's a continuity error. Wow, could be. Or maybe his sex play <laughs> sullied the first suit. Yeah, <laughs> he had to get a new one. Change into a spare. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that seems pretty possible because inside the brothel, the woman strips seductively while this man looks on lasciviously, uh, clothed in simply his underwear and a propeller hat while clutching. Oh, the a propeller building. hat. The propeller hat it made me laugh so hard when it was just there. And then when she gets the whip working around and the propeller hat starts just running on its own, truly, I cackle. The propeller is like a gauge of his arousal. Yeah, it, uh, it's so funny. It, it was. And it's like that classic thing of. Oh, the guy that wants to be dom- dominated turns out to be, you know, the schmuck in real life that wants to boss everyone else around. Exactly. And uh, eventually this sex play is interrupted and this prostitute <laughs> goes to leave with her grandma. <laughs> I know, that's so funny. That the other one comes in and goes, hey, your grandma's here to pick you up. So she just like drops everything and leaves <laughs> the room. Just leaves him hanging. She sure does. But she does get this other sex worker to... <laughs> <laughs> take kind of over finish, for her. kind of finish yeah see there's there's a lot of sisterhood in this brothel yeah exactly i mean they do they do band together i do like that aspect of it yeah there is definitely sort of um a misfits sort of banding together element i think uh that is very palpable in the brothel big mama taking in people like axel who was an ex-con and and raising him and and having these uh women who have Seems like not a lot of other options available to them if they're stuck here. There is definitely a community. Well, what did you make of the woman that assisted the abortion? Do you think she was a full-time abortion assistant, or was she a prostitute that would occasionally help in the operating room? Um, Man, I felt like I didn't honestly didn't even really get the sense that she was a prostitute. It felt like she had also just been kind of like picked up and uh, added to the group the way that Axel had been. Um, and said, Hey, honey, you know, do you want to learn how to give abortions with me? And she says, Okay. Bertha, she, she was a great assistant in the lab there. <laughs> What's well, the, the whole lab thing? Just when you first see it, first it's tiny and cramped. The table's even too small, you know, for a full body to stretch out on. Mm. Everything just has this claustrophobia and the blood on the wall, the dirty instruments, but in a non-hipster way. It's like they didn't dwell on it or lovingly the camera didn't go on. It was just kind of there Mm -hmm. without explanation again. And that's another thing I like about this. It didn't 
it didn't just linger over every little cleverness. It just kind of had it there. It sold it in two seconds. You knew you were in a bloody, you know, back alley abortion, little attic room. Yeah. We cut back to the couple. The girl is called in for her meeting with Big Mama, who pressures her into having the abortion. And she says the line, this is the easy way out real easy and again it is sort of this is where the satire element is coming in for me where you know it's very easy to sort of read that as pro-life and you know that this denizen of sin is you know leading her down the path to damnation i think that we are supposed to laugh at the idea of an abortion being an easy way out and that it is a trauma that people nobody's like i'm dying to have an abortion you know like this is the thing when people are like we need to make abortion harder to access for women people are still going to get abortions because it's it, it can threaten their own lives or they're just not prepared and i think that this is although on its surface a pro-life movie i think it is very much an empathetic movie for people who have had to go through the experience of having an abortion. Well, because we see it through her eyes, she's very sympathetic. The actress does a good job of being a sympathetic character. They could have played it differently and had her character be really bitchy and just unlikable. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that Frances made her likable made her more vulnerable to what was going on. And suddenly we're seeing, yeah, this would be horrifying for her to go through this and scary whereas if you know she comes in hard as nails and yeah just get it over with we wouldn't have that same journey through her but the little story i've made up in my mind for big mama is she's got all her working girls for uh every now and then one gets pregnant that cuts into her profit so you know she can't be working for a while sending her you know her girls off to these other abortion doctors i think at one point big mama said well, I'll save, you know, 200 bucks a pop if I just do each one myself here. Yeah. She wanted to travel. <laughs> I'll do it. She can rest up for two days. I'll have her, you know, back on the floor by Friday. That's right. Yeah, you know, and I think that's, you know, for Mama, it's just all dollars and cents. Seems possible. Um, I mean, she's willing to do a lot of seedy stuff, like uh, participate in this drugging plan that the boyfriend concocted um the drink that she gives michelle i think i said was her name i forget the girl gives he, she gives her the drug drink um and big mama performs the operation herself like you said and pulls out quote the largest second trimester pregnancy i've ever seen i know and that's another thing too you know people saying you should not do abortions past you know this trimester here's another just twisted thing that i I think I only discovered on the second viewing, the medical instrument that she pulls it out with turns out to actually be a coat hanger. That she hangs up her own lab coat that on. That she hangs the lab coat on. <laughs> I mean, if that's not the most twisted humor, come yeah, on. It's it's funny. I mean, it's so over the top. Yeah, exactly. Like, the idea that someone would be, think that this is taking itself seriously with something like that in it is... Uh, They're not, like, sterilizing it. too. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, there's still blood on it that gets on the jacket as she hangs it up. Right. It's, Come on. It's, uh, it's a funny moment. And she gives this fetus to her assistant, Bertha, who goes to flush it down the toilet. And into the sewer, it slides. As you say, it's very, very clean sewer path that it goes down into. <laughs> And uh, the camera pans up and shows that directly above it is some dumped toxic waste. Got to dispose of that properly, Big Mama. <laughs> Come on. I know it's right by her house. I like nobody noticed this. There's a whole other story of how that got there. Yeah, let's see that too. <laughs> I know the the whole thing with Big Mama is though. I don't see her as a villain in this. I think in her mind she justifies everything. This is just pragmatic for her, and sure. she probably when she was young got pregnant early it limited her choices in life she probably got an abortion you know in, in you know the the traditional back alley abortion not from you know a regular doctor and i think in her mind she's saying well at least it's not as scary as what she went through so this is like the home she made for these girls at least she keeps it in the family absolutely and this toxic waste drips down onto the puppet that they're using like i like you said it does sort of look <laughs> funny and inhuman but it does turn genuinely upsetting as it cries and flails around and inflates and deflates and um he mutates in the sewers as the mother finally comes to and is under understandably upset although much less upset than you would think like you like you sort of alluded to and one of the sex workers shoots a john a different John. I maybe this was the guy from earlier, and I just missed it. But that's right, because there are a couple of them lingering. Yeah, when all this happens, yeah. And uh, she shoots him, and uh, the gets the lady gets punched out by Sherman, the security guy, who also kicks out the couple. And he tells this prostitute that he just basically knocked out in a mildly exasperated tone. Uh, you don't argue with the customers. That's what I'm here for. Like, she didn't just kill that guy. <laughs> like, it wasn't just arguing with him. She murdered him. See, we're in a whole different universe in this house. Yeah. The regular rules of humanity don't exist it's a weird it's not it's a, a time warp but it's also a humanity warp this is when we sort of get to see some more of candy because bertha and candy are just hanging out and they're talking later that evening when they hear the titular sewage baby making noises below and they track it to the toilet and when they investigate it rips Bertha's head off with the umbilical cord. Like like in one second. It just comes off. Yeah, it's super satisfying. The like the gurgle that it makes, the head dropping into the toilet. Like it's really a, an effective moment. In, it's shocking. It really just it, it's like it happens so fast. Oh my god. Yeah. Candy tells Axel, Big Mama, and Sherman that some animal killed Bertha. And the couple get let back in because they can't get the back door open. And Axel goes to check on things. He confirms that Bertha is dead, but accuses Candy. Uh, and, and she says that whatever thing killed Bertha is what has them all trapped because it means to kill them all, which seems like She's maybe right. a little <laughs> bit of a leap at that moment, but she was right. <laughs> yeah. But don't you love it in these movies when they go, an animal killed them? That's always the default. Yeah. An, an animal. Yeah, that's a fucked up animal if it's an animal gang. <laughs> like an, an animal with like um, a barbed wire umbilical cord. Or, <laughs> you know, it's really, I don't know this from personal experience, but I, I assume it's really hard to sever someone's head. Seems probable. I mean, in real life, you know, you just don't do it with one swift 
axe movement. I think it'd be really hard to decapitate someone. Not when you're a sewage baby. <laughs> so that's why I'm wondering this, you know, big umbilical cord that's super long and it whips around. Do you think it has some like acid in it or some property that just melts the flesh instantly? I wouldn't write that off. It seems like it might just be super strong also. Could be the could be the toxic waste though, you know, has the toxic it- waste given it that uh that corrosive maybe it, it like secretes acid at will we got to see the power levels on this we need a trading card for the sewage baby that details his powers just like the x-men used to get what are the rules of the sewage baby <laughs> absolutely and as always shout out to my x-men fans <laughs> and I, I like that they are having this sort of argument but then the couple reiterates that the doors won't open and so axel we get to see his inefficiency right away where he goes to kick it down and he fails miserably and so he takes a coat rack to the window and this is when we finally see that they're sort of blocked by like an amniotic sack and uh the placenta and they're they're really like you said it sort of reframes everything into a home invasion sort of where they get trapped in there by this thing that clearly is doing this deliberately it's a great reveal when we see this window here. Well, if we want to think of metaphors and the art of Francis Terry, I really think, you know, that stuff, which is very red and pink, made out of netting and fabric. And by that point, they're not even trying for a realism. At that moment when they're out in that stuff, it's like an art film. It's like this dream-like stuff. Like, it's a dream of membranes and skin tissue. But when you take it at face value, he basically puts a womb around the house. This is a womb. And the red, you know, evokes blood, but it's not even wet or glistening. They don't even try to make it bloody. It's just the colors, but the pink, like pink flesh. And it's kind of cool. And at those moments, it's like a surreal art film. I I agree. And I think that that is sort of helped along by the next scene where there's this sort of rabble and and discussion people bickering back and forth about what to do and what's happening and there's some really great shot transitions where we get like almost talking head interstitials to see like how people are reacting it's like really dead on they're just like here's my emotional state right now and here's like what i think is happening it doesn't feel like a typical movie it feels like mm-hmm. a really interesting directorial choice to have this sort of check-in moment here in this particular framing. I think it's a really great moment. It sort of, at that moment, turns into an existential art film yeah. where they're all questioning existence and the creation of life. You know, <laughs> get really deep. And sort of the whole idea of when you're stuck in a life and death situation, who do you become? That's what this movie is, and and a lot of horror movies. You know, you're pressed into life or death. It amplifies who you are. What I thought was funny when all that was amplified, the boyfriend, who's kind of a jerk at the beginning, you know, first of all, you know, forcing an unconscious abortion on his girlfriend. Real dickhead move. Sure. But then he's just kind of, you know, this, you know, kind of thinks he's better than people kind of thing. But the uh, the kind of little twist is how he kind of bonds with the other tough guys. Because they at first think, oh, he's the kind of soft, preppy guy. But he kind of, you know, um, goes up to the challenge and he's helping them out. He's 
trying to, you know, battle ram the door and he's down in the basement doing all the guy stuff and leading the way. And I think he does finally get the respect of Sherman. Yeah, I I think so too. Although it's it's, it's so short-lived. I mean, (laughs) he's got the respect Sherman kind of gets it in one of the best special effects in the movie. Yeah, that was also a very surprising moment for me. We'll we'll get to it, but it really took me by surprise. <laughs> but but did you like kind of the boyfriend's arc in the story? It's interesting because he does start at such a low point for me. You know, I like even when he is like competent, I'm still like, all right, I still didn't forget that you're the scumbag <laughs> who <laughs> put all this in motion. <laughs> But I I do think that there is sort of this, like, fear of responsibility that he is obviously feeling at the beginning, which is why he's interested in getting this abortion, and uh, sort of meeting the responsibility head on in terms of this monster attacking them and being in charge of defending and helping protect people. It is is like a a nice little arc for him to go through. It is, because even though he's kind of a shitty father in that, he facilitated the killing of his unborn child. He did kind of a, a mature adult father-like thing when he started to step up to the plate to protect everyone and get them out of the mess. Yeah. So it's almost like you felt a little something. There wasn't enough to make up for the first part, but you saw the beginnings of him maturing into a man. Yeah, exactly. The rich John from earlier emerges, and he demands to know what's happening. And it really makes me laugh. In, in not just this movie, but in all movies, when people like tell someone the entirety of the situation and then they're like, this is crazy. Tell me what's happening. And they're like, we just told you, dude, like, you know, as much as we know <laughs> it right. happens in this. Well, were you wondering, there's a big gap where you didn't see him and then he just appears when all hell is breaking loose. Do they like have some special John lounge upstairs where they <laughs> could like just linger? Up. That's where he got his new suit. <laughs> yeah, he's just hanging out. Maybe there's music or a soundproof <laughs> room. So he hasn't heard anything that's been happening. Nope, he's caught up in pillow talk. But can, wouldn't that be cool? So if they you know do a little uh, extra footage for the Blu-ray, you know, they, the lost John lounge footage. <laughs> we gotta see it. We gotta see it. They do how once he emerges, he is immediately involved when they hear a scream upstairs from a woman being menaced by the fetus. And another thing that I really laugh at the whip sound effects as this thing like barely moves its little claw, <laughs> like it's going like an inch. And there's like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And you're just like, this is not the noise that this thing would be making. <laughs> what did but- you think the claw was? I couldn't quite figure that out because he had umbilical cord. Right. He had sharp teeth, but what was the claw? I couldn't tell if it was actual claws, like, on its hands, or if the umbilical cord could, like, grow a little, like, thing at the at the tip. I don't know. I couldn't tell, but uh, it was spooky, and it was moving quick, according to the sound effects. It was moving really quick. <laughs> <laughs> this mo- the monster, though, the fetus, the monster, the creature, whatever you want to call it, drags this girl under the bed. As Axel and Sherman rush up and they're unable to break down the door and they're just like shooting at it as this girl gets slashed up and they finally get in and the little umbilical claw waves goodbye (laughs) as it disappears down the sink. Didn't it go through a sheet or something at one point? Yeah, when it's like surprising her. That's like how it like comes in. And I think as the sheet, then you couldn't see the body part that it was connected to. I don't know. I don't know. 
Sheet it. Sheet it. Well, the thing, um, back to the John. All hell's breaking loose, and a little later on, there's two other prostitutes on the couch, and out of nowhere, he kind of is ogling one of her, you know, her cleavage. He goes, hey, I got, you know, another hundred dollars in my wallet. You guys want to go upstairs? <laughs> so their lives are in danger, but he wants to go upstairs and, and have more sex. He, he needs that stress relief, he says, and, uh... They said maybe they say maybe when we're done. What motivated this guy? <laughs> was it stress release? Was it denial? Who can say? Who can say? That guy, he was no good though. <laughs> he wasn't. He was pretty useless. I just wonder what did he do for a living? How did he have all this extra cash? He, he was in business. That's all you need just to know. Business. <laughs> not like he wasn't a lawyer. He didn't run like a carpet cleaning service. He was just in business that's right although he did know that he had a nice car that's that's right he does specifically say that he has a nice car that he doesn't want it sitting in front of their house <laughs> i in this neighborhood it could be trash by the time i get out although yeah, wouldn't you love to have seen though that was in his mind it was nice wouldn't you like if he went out and it was like a pinto or something <laughs> that would be great especially if it actually had still been stripped <laughs> and in real life, his you know businessman, he was just like some lower level manager somewhere. Honestly, that feels realistic to this guy's attitude. <laughs> he like inflated you know everything about himself, right? And uh, you know he this is where he starts having to uh, chisel at the wall. You know he's he's doing that. Sherman and Bill are clogging up the pipes. Uh, Bill is the boyfriend, by the way. I read that. So I'm Bill sorry. got a name, but she didn't. That is boggles my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the deal. The tragedy of this, since it didn't become a huge hit, the public didn't get to give a nickname to the baby. Yeah. People out there, if you have a good nickname for this. Maybe software. like a Cordy. There you go. I like that. <laughs> I like that one. The umbilical cord. I don't know. But yeah. his. That's a good jumping it, off point. People, sound off. That. Tell us what you think out there. When we finally track down Francis, say, Francis, in your mind, what was his name? <laughs> He'll say Francis Jr. See, that I could like, yeah. Because in, in a way, the baby was an extension of him. What was Francis Terry's trauma in childhood that manifested in this movie? So many questions coming up that we just got to find out. <laughs> Did his friends like hold his head down in the sewer or was he rolled into the gutter and, you know, trapped there for hours? Francis Terry is actually the screen name for Matt Murdock. He got blinded by toxic waste. He, he swore vengeance against all toxic waste and that he would defend or he would create a, a movie to really depict the dangers of it. Exactly. Oh my god. This was this is an anti-toxic waste movie, not an anti-abortion movie. And by the way, I don't know if you saw it through the credits. This is one where if you stop right when the credits start, you miss a lot. There's a little scene where I'm assuming it's the John who's made his way outside. We assume he's died, but then we see that thing pulling off the bloody skin down to the skeleton. It's incredible. It's Wait, Was that the John or was that supposed to be the sewage baby? I have genuinely no idea. I, it, this scene just appears at the end of the movie, and it's incredible. The effects are fantastic. It is so gross and creepy as this melting happens and the skin's getting pulled. It's so good, and it just comes out of nowhere, and I have no nowhere. idea where it's connecting or anything. I, I just loved it. And what makes it is this old man and this little boy are witnessing it, yeah. standing side by side. and. That again shows the humor of Francis, but I wonder, 
Like, was that little boy Francis's son? Wow. See, that little boy who's still probably young enough, maybe he could recount the whole story. Maybe he's like the one survivor of that whole movie that's still alive. Of course, the Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 approach. See, if they ever made a sequel, it would have to start with that little boy and how the trauma induced a killing spree. Exactly. Or he wanted to, like, somehow, he grew up to be a doctor just so he could recreate <laughs> the circumstances wow. to create another sewage baby. We're doing it. We're doing it, guys. <laughs> We're coming up with the sequel. Francis, only with Francis' approval. Of course. Please. Maybe Francis, on his deathbed, he'll sign off the rights. <laughs> All rights go to. You can do anything you want to with my character. <laughs> Francis Jr., please look after him. My only one thing is if you do this, you must hire my mother to do the catering. <laughs> She's 120 years old, but she can still cook. Hell yeah, I bet she can. And uh, yeah, so they're, you know, they're clogging the pipes. They're trying to trap this thing. They oh, cause- God. But, but by sticking a broom handle down the pipe, we'll stop it by putting this broom in the kitchen sink. They hear it traveling in the walls, though. And there's a moment here where I just really like it as a horror moment. It's There's no irony involved in this appreciation. I don't, it's not like a satire moment for me at all, but when Bill goes, it's stopped. I wonder what that means. Like for real, I'm like, oh, that's a really good line because of course, then we start thinking about what does that mean? That means that it's ready to attack again. And all of a sudden that tension just really skyrockets and it does attack. They really do this great setup and payoff yeah. moment here. It grabs Bill's legs as Sherman like cuts at the umbilical cord with a nearby knife. Just a really effective horror sequence. That moment when there's that low, it reminded me a little bit of John Carpenter's The Thing. It's a really great moment. Because isolated people stuck together because of The Thing. They can't go outside because of the cold and kind of trapped because they don't know where the monster is. It kind of had that same kind of moment. The monster flees. It makes the noise of a modem as it goes back down the drain pipe. (laughs) While the bit of the umbilical cord that they cut off like twitches in stop motion, which is also kind of disconcerting that this. There's two stop motion moments in the movie. Yeah. Which again, suddenly a whole new genre. It was so like, remember Evil Dead, the first one, there was some stop motion. It totally took me into that mode. It really takes you off your balance a little bit i think to all of a sudden have it jerking around like that it's a nice moment and bill in this point you know he he comes up with the idea to build this battering ram and they're just about to use it when axel re-emerges at the top of the stairs another great moment he's draped in shadow and he's carrying a pistol as the score goes into overdrive and it's like dun 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 (laughs) dun 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 and you're just like oh fuck axel is back baby it's very well framed. I mean, that shot. Talk about you know low angle and this powerful guy at the top, very yeah. threatening. Throughout, I just wanted someone to smack Axel and grab the gun. Yeah, probably would have saved a lot of people. But he comes down and he's menacing everyone and he breaks the battering ram. And Sherman does get the drop on him. 
while Axel is distracted and they tussle a little bit. And this movie feels like maybe the first time I've ever seen a realistic reaction to having a bottle smashed on your head. Because in mm-hmm. most movies, people just kind of shake it off. But this dude is in agony <laughs> from getting this bottle on his head. And he's like bleeding and everything. It like, you're like, oh, that's what being hit with a bottle would be like. Not just, ah, you hit me, back at it. I mean, the fight scenes were good. And just when you think Sherman has the gun and you know Axel's not going to terrorize them, perfect time for that creature to come out of the woodwork, literally. Literally. It erupts from the wall. It's, <laughs> it's great. And, you know, Sherman, he's like hyping himself up to kill Axel and fend off more trouble down the line. He's like, I have to do this for the greater good. And you really like as an audience member watching it for the first time, it felt like this was a natural progression. This is the ex or the internal threat and they have to get rid of him so that they can focus on the external threat. And when this fetus comes out of the wall, it's now huge. It grabs Sherman and Axel grabs the gun again and he shoots ostensibly at the monster, but he also kills Sherman and he keeps shooting at the wall as the monster leaves. It's such a fascinating dynamic change for me because we're about halfway through the movie and just had our de facto protagonist killed by the rival. And I really feel like that's not a common thing. No, it's a big reversal. And again, by combining with the monster coming out, it it just shocked you. And to me, uh, thinking as a filmmaker, you know, they rent this house. All I could think of was, did they dismantle the drywall? You know, did they somehow, you know, make a fake wall but keep the studs up? Did they make a, a total, you know, um, fake wall somewhere? Just from the mechanics of it, you watch it, and I'm still thinking, how do they do this? Yeah. It's great. It's really great. But the, but then when you think about it too much, this is where it gets kind of funny. <laughs> you, can't is that, that. Well, you can't think about it too much. <laughs> how did he travel in into the wall? You know, it's only how many inches are there? You know, he's a full-size thing. You know, how could he squeeze himself well, into the we wall? We see that he can transform him, his size at will. So who, who knows what he uh, so can do? The rules of sewage, baby. <laughs> exactly. We need that is power he, Is he supernatural? <laughs> I mean, did this the the toxic stuff? I think it still has to be ruled by science. It can't be magic. I agree. So maybe that toxic stuff came from like uh, like a DNA research facility that <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know. There's one on every corner these days. <laughs> oh my god! But still, he comes out of the wall, and then he grabs him, and you just know in Axel's mind he's purposely shooting at both the monster and Sherman. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a great character moment. We understand exactly what's happening, and it continues to escalate. In a, a, again, like this movie really does keep me guessing because he takes charge. Candy scoffs at him, and <laughs> we're like, okay, we've seen this dynamic already as well. You know, where she kind of talks back at him, and he takes it really seriously, and. She goes to walk away after sort of um, emasculating him a little bit, and he shoots her in the fucking head. Yeah. <laughs> and that was shocking, too, because you didn't think so much death would be happening then. No, absolutely not. You you expect there to be a little bit of a lull before you get another kill. You expect Candy to sort of be around for longer because she's had sort of this comedic role throughout the whole thing. It's just great. The way that they keep it fresh, I think, is is spectacular. Remember early on when Big Mama makes Candy apologize to Axel when they're on the stairs? Yeah. And that kind of speaks to a Big Mama 
kind of infantilizing Axel. And you could tell she's let him off the hook throughout his however long they've been together. Yeah. She's an enabler. She's an Axel enabler. Classic Big Mama. I've always said this about her. <laughs> she's an Axel enabler. Because <laughs> she's so tough to everyone else, but her weak spot is Axel. But the whole thing with that, though, is even though there's this mother-son kind of thing, this parental thing, there's also some weird psychosexual thing between the two of them, and you just know that they share a bed together. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, Axel is, he's all kinds of messed up, man. This guy, he's a loose cannon, to say the least. And he's determined that they're going to kill this thing. He, 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 that's one thing that was never in question. As much as he was trying to usurp control here, he also is like, we're going to get that monster. And they make an educated guess that it's in the boiler room. And so that, the boiler room was good. There was a little flaw where it was underlit for a big chunk, mm-hmm. and then you couldn't see the actors very well. But then when it did get lit, I thought it was creepy. Yeah. And there's that moment when the bullet hits like a steam pipe, and at one point, Axel, when the monster throws him down, half his face gets steamed, and he has a bloody steam burn. Yeah. That's good. But even That's that good. doesn't <laughs> slow him down, and suddenly you're thinking, huh. Axel's tough, you know? He's not going to let anything stop him. So even though you hate Axel, you still admire that in spite of his big injury, he's still determined to kill the monster. Yeah, he's single-minded uh, single minded and uh, focus-driven for sure. And, uh, you know, he's they hear a cat. He fires off a bunch of rounds. He barely misses his compatriots who went down with him. <laughs> and, and while they're distracted, the, mo- the monster lunges out and grabs Vanessa, which is one of the prostitutes. And this thing is grody as hell. This is one of our first times really getting to look at it in its, like, fully evolved state. Uh, it's got its flapping jaw, and it's slimy, and it, like, looks like a flesh-colored Zerg hydralisk. It's pretty <laughs> gross, man. And they scatter in a panic as it grabs this thing. And Axel is firing randomly. He gets hit onto this pipe, and he gets burned. And they get upstairs to regroup. And Axel decides that he's going to use the John as bait. And Oh, I forgot about that. That was twisted. Yeah, that's right. He says, you're, you're walking in front of us, Buster. But you know what he uses? It wasn't obvious at first. It's that thing you would use on a dog. It's like a pole. And it's got that little wire, round wire around it. So you'd put it over the dog and then tighten it around like a leash. It's kind of like a leash bar, a bar leash. And he puts that around the guy and kind of like he's choking him and then pushing him with the rod. It's fucked up. So it's it's not, he's not only bait, but he dehumanizes him and treats him like a dog. Yeah, he literally, he makes him bark. He does. It's like deliverance too. electric dogaloo. Deliverance to Electric Dogaloo. That's my favorite thing. You can take any movie and then then call it Part 2 Electric Boogaloo. It works with any movie. Showgirls 2 Electric Boogaloo. Hell yeah. Honestly, (laughs) I went and watched Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo to be like, what's the big deal about this? It's just a good name, to be honest. I did not really like that movie very much. Pretty Had a great theme song, though. That is true. And I hear that Breaking One is better, but Breaking Two, it's your classic. Have the, have, have the soundtrack. Breaking Two soundtrack. Okay. Yeah. Your classic uh, rec center being taken over by a corporate break dance. sort of thing. 
breakdowns to raise money for it. See, so. what if the distributors ahead of time during production said, we will only release Sewage Baby if you add a breakdancing number? Forward thinking. I would be very impressed, especially if the Sewage Baby <laughs> breakdancing. does the breakdance. <laughs> Instead of a piece of cardboard, he could do it on a piece of wall that he tore off. There you go. So many opportunities for the Sewage Baby to breakdance. <laughs> sewage Baby 2 electric boogaloo there we go let's this is this is it's we're going to incorporate all of this into the kickstarter <laughs> so who did um who sang ain't no stop ain't no stop who sang electric boogaloo to the theme song mm. we'll have to find those exact people yeah bring everyone you know, back 30 <laughs> some odd years later <laughs> and the original cast let's just be everyone involved in the sequel has go. to somehow be involved in the original we got to track these people down. People who didn't even get credit. Candy. Like Candy, she must still be alive. She is probably late 30s in that. She's probably like late yeah, 60s now. right. <laughs> she can um, do a cameo in the hospital. Like a candio. A candio. She can play a candy striper. There we go. Wow. It's all coming together, guys. A 70-year-old candy striper. <laughs> That'll be during the nightmare sequence where yeah, everything is just That's a the hospital. The hospital comes back, too. <laughs> And so they go, they go back down there. It's attempt number two. The monster tries to, I guess, like mess with the lights, but it gets shocked. And so Axel unloads into it. Nothing happens. And he picks up this spare metal rod that just happened to be lying on the floor. Happens to be there. You know, classic metal rods. Tries to impale it, misses, and gets shocked himself to the point that his head explodes. I know the exploding. (laughs) And again, you just go. Did that just happen? Wait, wait a minute. It's he incredible. was shocked. It became very scanners at that moment. Yeah, I so I actually made a little gif of that moment and it like the, while you're going through it there's two frames of the like prop head that explodes and it's <laughs> so funny to look at this prop head just sitting there like half cocked over cuz it doesn't have the support like Man, when you can see the seams of a practical effect like that, it just fills me with joy. I just love it so much. Well, where are you going to post this GIF? No one gets to see it except me. Oh, my <laughs> God. Your, your private gratification exploding <laughs> head GIF. Well, some things should be kept private. That's right. That's right. Um, no, I, it was, you know, I was like, you never know when you'll need an exploding head GIF. And so <laughs> let me... Let me take this down. Didn't you love, right, as he's about to do it, he holds up the lightning rod thing up. And it's like one of those, you know, line in all these movies. Take this, you motherfucker. <laughs> but the way the actor says it, he tries to bring a different line reading to that yeah. than you normally hear. Remember that? It's very funny. This is, a, again, sort of like looking at this actor and being like, he is going for something fully unhinged. Like, that's what he's going mm-hmm. for. And so, you know... I kind of respect the fact that he's going for a different line read, that he's making these creative choices that maybe not all of them work perfectly. Uh, maybe he c- could have just stuck with a, t- a traditional line read for I'm coming to get you, you motherfucker. But, <laughs> you know, uh, you got to give props to uh, what was this guy's name? Frank. Frank Reeves is what he was credited as. Although his Oh, that's the actually. actor. OK. Frank. Did Reeves. he do any other credits on IMDb? I think he's like a 
director now i think he like he did a short film in 2010 see if he did like a commentary on the new blu-ray that would be really interesting yeah he yeah it looks like he's done a few a few roles between this this so this was his first movie and it, it goes up to 2010 when he's uh doing the shorts that he directed and wrote and everything so maybe this is the return of frank rivera see this whole movie it's almost like for frank it's almost like one big audition tape for Martin Scorsese. <laughs> like you said, this is his taxi driver. It is his taxi. This was kind of like the closest I've seen horror come to like a Scorsese. There's, there's a lot going on, gang. More than you might suspect with a name like Sewage Baby. Well, didn't Scorsese come up with all those late 60s filmmakers and like the John Cassavetes and those yeah. types? There's not a little John Cassavetes realism to it. Hell yeah, there is. And, uh, you know, he's he's taken his uh, surrealism stuff as well. This guy, Francis Terry, just really blending all kinds of great stuff into one delicious sewage baby soup. Well, just off this alone, I think he could write a whole book about his experience on sewage baby. I absolutely believe it. Axel remembers. <laughs> and what a cool name. Yeah, absolutely. And... Unfortunately, Axel can't remember anything after this head explosion, and people are real <laughs> on edge. <laughs> Everyone, they're back to plan battering ram. It's not doing anything. They think that they hear the monster behind the door. This is when they accidentally kill Vanessa, who we saw get grabbed by the monster in the previous expedition. She had actually managed to escape the beast, and they shoot her down. This is again where you say it's like it's a pretty nice moment here where we like sort of get to see the emotionality of the people who are dealing with this and how that's sort of becoming overwhelming for them to be going through not only this invasion by this monster, but also the sort of internal battles that are happening as well. The actress who plays Vanessa, her acting is on a different plane than the other actors. I'd be curious to hear her story because early on, especially she had some very awkward moments she's approaching the monster or approaching something scary Mm -hmm. it's almost like her expressions and her voice don't quite match almost like a delayed reaction she was i think one of the harder ones to access in this yeah although in the end she was kind of the martyr of the group so she kind of had this joan of arc feel so (laughs) she didn't start off strong but she ended on a big bang she ended strong yeah I would agree with that as well. And it, it does sort of provide this this nice moment for the other actors to get to flex a little bit. And all of this is happening sort of simultaneously. There's the battering ram makes a little progress on the door. The customer, the John, demands to be the first out. He emerges into this pink and ropey exterior. He wanders for a little bit before getting et by the monster. And uh, his hand gets thrown back in. This is the other stop motion moment mm-hmm. where it's still wiggling and grabbing. Another nice little touch. It's very Adam's family. Yeah, it did look like thing. <laughs> and yeah, this is where the remaining sex worker shoots herself in despair. So it's just the couple and Big Mama now. See, the thing is, when he goes out into that womb thing and gets killed, killed suddenly francis shows restraint after all that build-up we just <laughs> want to see him get ripped apart yeah. but it's all like this symbolic you know the hand the cut off hand <laughs> suddenly it's this poetic moment and then stop motion animation and it's like wait a minute we've been waiting for the showdown 
But maybe that's why he gives us later at the end the peeling off skin of the John to make up for the blood and gore we didn't get to see that first time. There, oh, okay, yeah. All right, I'm on board with that. Where like that's him. We thought that he was dead with the hand. Turns out mm-hmm. he just lost the hand and then melts at the the finish line. Because I think the monster shot him with the acidic ooze. Wow. It's, it, I, I think Sewage Baby has the ability to secrete acid that can melt off skin. We're, we're getting to the bottom of it. We're figuring it all out. We're getting the rules of the Sewage Baby together. <laughs> and it's so important in the world of fandom to have every rule <laughs> nailed down or else you just can't sleep at night. We have to nail our 95 Sewage Baby theses to the church door by midnight. I have seen like flimsier Kindle ebooks. I mean, this could actually be a, a good selling ebook the rules of sewage baby (laughs) well we don't have a ton of sewage baby left unfortunately to get to explore these rules because big mama goes to be with axel and she like she's like i'm going into the basement the spoiler room and they're like you're gonna die and she's like i don't even care but she doesn't even get to do that because the door is locked to even get that far and the monster erupts from the laundry machine and kills the heck out of her did it come out of the laundry machine it sure did i forgot that part See, that's another rule. He can morph to fit into appliances. <laughs> the piping, yeah. And it goes up and it kills Bill, the boyfriend, as well. And it runs at the girl. It does, like, the reverse of that jump scare from Shock, the Mario Bobby yes, movie. Yes, the Shock. Excellent uh, uh, comparison. It, yeah, it does, like, the reverse of that, though, where in that one, the guy, the like kid runs forward, and then all of a sudden, he's a man, and he erupts into frame. In this one, the monster runs at the girl shrinking all the while turning back into a baby shaped thing and then runs right up her vagina thrashing around in her abdomen see i assumed he was yeah going back up her but then part of me thought well is he just on top of her stomach and we see you know under her dress i assumed it was in the stomach but a little part of me thought well maybe he just ran onto her stomach and was under the dress i don't think so i think that he ran right up her yeah it would have had to have been because for later on, at the very, very end, you yeah, kind of have right. to have him in her for one last killing. That's right. I So I thought that this was going to be like set up for Sewage Baby 2, and it was going to sort of exit or fade out with us being like, oh, what's going to happen when the Sewage Baby emerges again? But eventually a pair of cops arrive and save her. She st- this is, We cut to the asylum now that we saw her in at the beginning, and there's a bunch of unbelieving doctors at the end, and when some of the orderlies go to rape her, the suckling kills their asses while some other residents look on and laugh. End of movie. So you get one last suckling kill. He's protecting her at the very end. It's quite a quite a finale. Yeah, that was an interesting shot. That kind of, you know, going through. There's like a big room. It's only in movies where, oh, all the despondent, you know, people. Let's just put them on, all in one room together. Except this one didn't even have padding. Yeah. It was like a padded cell, but without the budget for the padding. And then they had um, the orderlies come. Is very Francis. Remember Francis with Jessica Lang? Kind of evoked a little of that, you know, the horror of the mental institution. But see, like you, I expected, my expectation was like a rebirth. You know, it's it's in her again. I thought it was going to get very alien and just is going to burst out of her stomach. That's what I thought was going to happen. Right. Not the case. Uh... Darn it. But see, the umbilical cord came out to kill the guy. 
but you never quite saw how it exited her. I thought maybe that cord still did come through her stomach. Mm, she's being puppeted. Puppeted. Sewage, baby. But could you tell, did she really die at the end or not? I don't think that she died. I think that she's okay. just in, standing there in shock. Then it did leave it open to a sequel. Yeah, it did. And and we have confirmation that it's, it's still in there. So That same actress, 30 years later, could technically be only about 50. It picks up where that left off. She's just getting out of the mental institution. 30 years later, they finally say, you can get out. Right. Literally, they know living inside her like a parasite. It just got really, really small. It's like <laughs> hiding on a rib or something. So oh, where yeah. does she go from there? What, what, how would the story pick up? Asylums, as they are depicted in this movie, don't really exist anymore. Now it is sort of mental institution and, and mental rehabilitation. There's still A lot of them are still not very good, but it's certainly not quite the same way that this is depicted. You know, I think that if we are like, oh... People in these situations are treated with a little bit more compassion and respect these days. And s someone sort of going back to her case and being like, maybe you shouldn't even be in here in the first place. That's, I think, how, where... How, did, how does this sound? I just thought of something. Okay, budget hey. cuts, close down the hospital, <laughs> everyone's out, so they send her to a halfway house, which is always, you know, the new compassionate... Get them back in society. Well, the halfway house just happens to be the old brothel. We've cracked it. Wouldn't that just be meta? Yep. I love it. Folks, look forward to the suckling too. Electric <laughs> sewage baby Lou. <laughs> and then can you just, just see the whole for the first time she goes, you know, through there. Just the memories it all comes of back. It all rushes the back. flashbacks. Wow. The first time she has to go into the basement at night and looks at the electrical panel. Wow. This is it, gang. You know, with that said, look forward to the new to the next one, but we're only doing this sequel because this is the best horror movie ever made. And now, Kelly, we have reached the point of the episode where we sum up why this is in fact the best horror movie ever made, and I will let you go first. Oh my god. Well, number one, Francis Terry. The more we talk about him, it's not only that it has great characters and actors and special effects. This man wrote and directed and just by sheer will made this happen. And I think, you know, in the big scheme of things, no, it's not the best horror movie in the world. You can never pick just one. I, I, probably, I would have picked, you know, Prince of Darkness if someone else hadn't already taken it. I already told you that. <laughs> that being said, I just like the fact that this was the only movie this guy made. He made this splash, and for whatever reason, this is what he'll be remembered by. And I just like that in talking about it. I don't think we could pick apart just any old low-budget horror movie and have this much to talk about. The fact that he created something that sustained this much discussion means there was something to it. But I also say that in this place and time for me, I want to embrace the values of an old do-it-yourself horror movie in a time when we're being overrun by corporate horror movies and everything is so darn slick. Yeah. I want to be reminded of what it was like to make a horror movie in mostly one location with one small group of people, probably shot it in a couple weeks, and that, you know, a big company thought, we want to restore this and put that, this out on Blu-ray and have audio commentaries that 30 years later, 
a you know this little movie that was as disposable as its lead character <laughs> still has a life to it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that on its own terms, it is a really excellent homage, tribute, whatever you want to call it, to classic exploitation while updating it to sort of fit the modern at the time sensibilities of what uh, a splatter movie or that era of horror movies might be like. I think it does a really excellent job respecting the past, understanding the shoulders of giants that it's standing on, and then still bringing its own sort of uniqueness to it. I think that it's a excellent satire. I think that satire that is too easily recognized as satire loses some of the element that makes it effective. And this movie, I think, does trust you to understand that it's, it's not everything that it says it is on the surface. I think that that level of trust in its audience um, is huge for me. It, on top of all of that, the fact that it is so interesting to look at this movie and understand that it is sort of serving as this monument and legacy to Francis Terry's creative life. You know, he he did a few things here and there beyond it, but this is really the one, like you said, that he'll be remembered for. And um, the fact that it is swinging for the fences in such a way that it, it is using all the resources it has to the top of its ability. I just, I respect the hell out of it. I think that there's a lot going on. I think that the acting does range, but it is certainly serviceable to the movie. I just think that it's a, a whole heap of fun. And that's why it's the best horror movie ever made to me. Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was so fun. You can tell how much fun we had because this is going to be a long ass <laughs> episode. Please tell people where they can find you and, and listen to your own show. Well, then just go to my website to learn about all my stuff. It's, grungesploitation.com which is g-r-u-n-g-e s-p-l-o-i-t-a-t-i-o-n dot com because I don't know why I coined that term because I, I like to call my stuff not exploitation, grungesploitation because that whole grunge thing in Seattle, the early 90s but also I just love exploitation in general and I just am happy first of all to be invited on your show and that I just love that, you know, people like you are actually making it fun to talk about this stuff. This is an amazingly fun show, and I had an amazing time being here. Uh, well, I can't thank you for the kind words enough. Uh, as I definitely encourage people to check out your show, 2-Bit Horror. I think that a great place to start would be with the episode featuring yours truly. But there's a lot of great stuff on there. As far as my plugs, you can find the show on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That's the name on Facebook and Instagram as well. But I'll be honest with you, I pretty much have stopped using those platforms. So uh, Twitter is where you can find me for the most part. Or go to LittleHorrorPHL.com. If you are enjoying the show uh, and you want to help support it, you can go to the Patreon patreon.com forward slash little horror phl the last thing that just went up was actually a spotlight episode uh, for the movie begotten which i referenced in this very episode you know it was nice channel 83 uh, my buddy chris came back on and we talked about this movie in sort of uh, without the constraint of quote unquote the best it was just a movie that we found very interesting and so uh, you're going to get all kinds of great stuff like that where little behind the scenes snippets 
commentary episodes, legal thriller, all kinds of great stuff on the Patreon. So uh, support us there. And uh, rate and review if you're enjoying the show as well, I forgot to say. Um, That's it. Thanks again, Kelly, and uh, everyone out there. Have a good day. Bye.